Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that had so much success off-Broadway, they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today are... Broadway podcast co-hosts. They are brothers. They are theater fans. They are the moment. The moment is them. One might say they've done the thing and continue to do the thing. Please welcome the co-hosts of Drama, Connor and Dylan McDowell. Hello, gentlemen. Drama. Drama. Hello. I'm (laughs) Dylan. I am Connor. For your listeners who have never heard our voices before, I'm the one that sounds more annoying. And I'm a little bit raspy. I I like to think at least. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for coming on, guys. So, um, first of all, I was telling you before we recorded, I've been listening to some of your podcasts today, and it's lovely. I have one complaint. Uh For a podcast called Drama, you're not bringing me enough drama. You're far Mm. too even, uh, even tempered. You're far too kind and considerate. You ask your guest where you're meeting them that moment, like emotionally and mentally, if like what headspace they're in. You are... Far too kind and considerate. I don't like it. I your podcast should be called Nice People. Wow. <laughs> this is this is you must be the only one star review that we've gotten on Apple Podcasts before. Um, that is a really great critique. You know, we when we started the podcast in 2019, I think we wanted to be a little bit page sixy. Mm-hmm. And then we realized how small the theater community is and how people are so afraid of. Anything. Stepping on your toes, you know? And Anything. I think the only, the closest example to someone who steps on toes we've learned, other than the filthy foul-mouthed Matt here, mm. is this sweaty fella on TikTok. Uh. And we see the stir that that's sort of caused. You know what I mean? So yeah. at heart, Connor and I are just kind, 
Midwestern boys. But we'd like to think that drama is more than just, you know, gossip or tea. It's also life, honey. Yeah, absolutely. I, first of all, uh, you know you're famous when you get your first one-star review on Apple because it's no longer like <laughs> friends and family. It's someone who found you was not a fan and, <laughs> you are, and you're still standing here. So bravo. Um, I think this might be the first time we're hearing Connor and Dylan dip their toes into some of the, for lack of a better term, cuntiness of Broadway. We don't, we're not page six on this podcast. We don't really like to uh, tell secrets super out of school. The only tea we tend to spill is the stuff that's like, relatively well known in the community um maybe some fans may not know but like everyone in the community knows it's out there um and you know we opinionated but on that note first of all i have i have two questions one is for you one yes. for me both of you have <laughs> asked your guests what is their ring of keys moment i don't know what your ring of keys moment is and for the listeners of my podcast who don't listen to drama what does that mean oh my god so my answer changes. We always say like, do you have a moment or moments? And that's because I find that I still have them all the time. But if I were to really boil it down to when I realized like, I love the community aspect. I love, I love celebrity. I love Disney Channel original movies because it's like this there was a network of artists that they would, you know, maybe Brenda Song was starring in a detective, you know, film, but also she was playing I'm sorry, London Tipton that, on The Sweet Life. I'm sorry. Is, did Brenda Song do Get a Clue with Lindsay Lohan? Is she the friend in that? Or is that, are you talking about a different detective movie? I actually don't know what I was, I wasn't specifically referencing like a specific Brenda Song. She, she might have been the friend in that. She might have been. Connor, you cannot say details like that willy-nilly because these things exist in the decom universe (laughs) i think i just really want brenda song to play a detective in you know she was she was in get a clue she was she had to to have been yeah she had to be why else would i have said that i don't know first of all we don't know i think she was she feels like the kind of sidekick to Lindsay lohan at that time like she was was young she was in it she was in it that we love this we love this (laughs) i love this but no i loved this and then, on, but you're watching Disney Channel, so you're not only watching them star in movies, have songs on the CDs that come out on Radio Disney, on the website, on um, you know DisneyChannel.com, where you can play the video games inspired by the shows. But also, you're watching Disney, and you see little like <laughs> we're all just chilling behind the scenes vibes, you know, like they're recording songs for charity, you know, doing summer games where they're competing in the Olympics. So I really feel like. Decom culture skyrocketed me into loving the idea of like a community, a theater community, a troupe, this, this, um, something you could be connected to, which of course the musicals were my favorite. Yeah. High school musical, Cheetah Girls. So I feel like if I were to really pin it back to like Cheetah Girls with Miss Susan Egan. Period. (laughs) On period. Sorry, and I interrupted you. Can t- finish your statement. Oh, I just feel like if I were really to think back to like the the youngest I was when I was. Wait, was Susan know, Egan like, in the Cheetah Girls? Wasn't she? No, she was got to kick it up. Never mind. Got to kick I it up. She out. was she was Miss Bartlett and got to kick it up. Thank you, Dylan. That was homophobia on my part. Connor, continue. I love that. No, I feel like that's where it began for me because then I was like, okay, Ashley Tisdale's slang is Sharpay, but she's very grounded and humble as Lund- um as a Maddie behind the candy counter and. Sweet life. So I would say that that's it for me. But I was always interested in 
celebrity in the arts and drama, of course. So Dylan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, even before that, like Disney movies on VHS were huge for us. You know, I think every young theater gay acted out the scenes while the movie was playing for their family. You know, everyone loves to be like, when I was a kid, they actually filmed me singing along with Aladdin or whatever it is. That is real. That did happen. Mm. It's not as unique as you might think it is, but it is. I'm going to go with a, with a different one that I have been thinking about lately for my ring of keys, which for those who don't know, in the fun home, it's when you realize maybe your identity, you identify with something. On our show, we talk about maybe your love of the arts or theater and identifying yourself within that passion. And I think it was the movie Batman and Robin for multiple reasons, but it had Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy. And it was this draggy performance of weak chick turned super sexual villain. And she was mysterious and she was wearing these incredible outfits and she had unreal lines and her delivery was camp of everything. And I think that campy movie really helped kind of sharpen my sensibility for what I like and go for. I'm a huge drag person. Like I'm not, I don't do drag, but I love drag. I love the arts. I love theater. I love, you know, some of my favorite musicals include things like Hairspray where there's drag components or kinky boots. And so I think that that was a moment where I was like, Ooh, I love this. What else is there? And I can kind of trace back now looking at this, you know, it all started with Uma, I suppose. I'll start with Uma. I will say Uma Thurman in Batman and Robin is similar to me as Gina Gershon in Showgirls of Mm. two women who know exactly what movie they're in and are the only ones who come out of that thing alive because they know exactly how to uh, mediate their performance to the temperature of the film. Uh, I love both those characters. Thank you very much. Thank you. What's yours? The one that my family likes to talk about, I really have no memory of. It is Disney. Surprise, surprise. When Mm. I was three or four, I was a very... Uh, hyper uh, energetic child I couldn't sit still I cried a lot I still cry a lot but for different reasons mm. and when we were in Florida visiting my grandparents my uh, my parents took all of us to see Beauty and the Beast on ice and my grandfather was like oh great Matt can't sit still for five minutes he'll be gone by intermission but supposedly the moment it began I was just like hooked and I sat still Aww. and I was completely silent and that's when my parents I was three because Beauty and the Beast on Broadway was the year later. And my parents were like, that was when we knew that there wasn't necessarily something like up with you. You just like you needed something that you connected with. And clearly this was it. I like that you mentioned sort of like things that re-trigger your love of of the arts and the community. Because I've had, I will say, and we'll talk about it as we get into this show, which we haven't announced yet. But as anyone who's clicked on the episode <laughs> link knows, they know what show we're talking about. Uh, there are times as you get further down the rabbit hole of the thing you love and you get closer to seeing how the sausage gets made it's easy to fall out of love with it a lot and it just it happens and sometimes things will kind of re-trigger your love for it and i would say the last two things that really did it for me was freshman year of college when i all my listeners are going to take a shot here when i rediscovered the 94 carousel recording and just i was like oh this show sounds incredible. And I watched it like in center. I was like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And this is now my favorite musical forever. And then the second one, uh, ironically enough, was seeing Fun Home uh, on Broadway after seeing it at the public where I was like, oh, this was a 10 out of 10. And then I see it on Broadway. And I'm like, oh, this is an 11 out of 10. And mm. I went and saw it five more times. Uh, oh, I love both of those examples. 94 yeah. was, that was Audra, right? 
Audra was 94. Yeah, she was okay. uh, Carrie Pipperidge. And remember this name, gents, because it's going to come back to us later. Sally Murphy was our Julie Jordan. <clears throat> now, on that note, okay. Connor, Dylan, uh, what show are we talking about today? Well, our listeners will not be surprised at all that the show that we wanted to bring to you is Spring Awakening, which is a ring of keys from myself and my brother, I think mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Came at the right time. We were, you know, 13, 14 when we discovered it. And those were our new Disney Channel original stars. I mean, we were all about them. And interestingly enough, all of them had these robust careers that we could follow throughout. And even to as recently revisiting the material last year in the documentary. So I think Spring Awakening changed theater forever. And it changed my life forever. So I'm super thrilled that we get to break it down. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, we'll absolutely break it down and we'll discuss the legacy and the history of all of it. Before we do that, let's take a quick break. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. I'm so glad I did that now. Because if I didn't do it now, I would forget about it for an hour. And I have to do two of them. So you remind me in like an hour, I got to do another one. Our uh, friend Robbie Roselle told us to remind you. So I will definitely have to take a bathroom break at some point because I only drink constantly. Not not that, alcohol. No, that's fine. For, I'm, I'm currently drinking alcohol right now. So I don't appreciate that shade, Connor. But Ooh. also, Dylan and I can talk while you go pee. You're not yeah, special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't. You. I wasn't going to leave when I peed. Oh, well, we're talking about the right show for all this kind of talk, honey. His <laughs> piss play on a podcast must be talking about Spring Awakening. Um, mm. So, y'all were 13, 14 when the original production came out. That's what you're telling me. Okay. That is true. We were like, I think we were 12, so it's 2006, right? It opened on Broadway in the winter of 2006. Yeah. 2006. Okay. So, we discovered it a little late in the spring. Mm-hmm. spring so, awakening. your Spring Awakening was in the spring got it uh spring of 2007 then like a few months okay we discovered uh, you... july specifically july of 2007 oh. the morning we were leaving for our family vacation to new york city to see beauty and the beast starring annalise vanderpool so we got a little disney decom mm. connections here and i was on myspace.com you know just doing some last minute 
what's going to happen when we're in New York this week? Mm-hmm. And I found the MySpace page for Spring Awakening and it was red and black. It was sexy. And I saw boys in schoolboy uniforms, which is, you know, kind of hot. Oh, I think, yeah. you know, closeted me was like, what's going on here? And of course it was completely sold out. It had just won the Tony. So we, we saw a Beauty and the Beast and Hairspray that trip. But the next summer we went back and saw it just as the original cast was sort of phasing out. And we saw mm-hmm. like the first replacement cast kind of, but I digress. Well, first of all, Dylan, was your nickname in high school receipts? Because you just have all the receipts. You just know mm. all of it. His memory is insane. Yes, it is. Meanwhile, it is. I don't remember what we even talked about 10 minutes ago. So, Well, I was listening to the Glick episode for preparation for this episode. I was like, oh, let's hear, let's hear what a spring. Yeah, I do my homework, Dylan. I did graduate from college on time and on budget, uh, despite what the rest of my family thought was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> on budget so you do have receipts as well my friend she oh. do they're all paid off um that said uh listening to glick i believe it's you dylan who you are very good at knowing what played in what theater that's your yes. that's your brain i'm it's one of my favorite ab- games i'm absolutely the same uh yes so we can have let's do some challenges later but um yeah <laughs> bonus so content i was uh, a few years older than you guys, not that much older, not like grandpa here, but I was, I was 16 when the show was at the Atlantic and moved to Broadway. And I remember, <laughs> I, I was definitely like, I had my you know finger on the pulse of Broadway at the time. I was a city kid. All of my friends were theater kids. So like we all were seeing everything. And at the time that Spring Awakening was announced to come to Broadway, the only things I remember were my friend Emily had seen it at the Atlantic and there was no real buzz among theater kids about it other than just like, oh, this thing that was off Broadway, it's coming to Broadway, who's seen it? Because it was like all the adults had, were the ones who made it like a big sold out hit at the Atlantic because Duncan Sheik and, you know, the the reviews and all that. It, it did not take off with the kids until Broadway. And mm. Emily, I remember Emily saying, like, it's really good. I'm not sure how it's going to go, uh, which they talk about in the documentary. And I knew Skylar from you know years prior from doing theater with him and so for a lot of us it was like oh Skylar's gonna be on Broadway that's cool and then the other thing was there was a moment where no one knew who was gonna come to Broadway because Jonathan Groff had just gotten cast as I think Jesus in Godspell at Paper Mill and Leah Michelle had gotten cast as Eponine for the first revival of Les Mis and the conversation was well who's gonna replace them for Broadway because I mean you don't turn down those jobs right. and that both of them turned down those jobs to do spring awakening, which was like very big news. Uh, it's the second time some, a leading lady in a Michael Mayer musical has turned down playing Eponine to be in a Michael Mayer musical. Do you know who the other leading lady was? Yes, it was. It was um, the role ultimately ended up going to Celia Keenan Bolger. For for Eponine, yes, but the first. Eponine. So this uh, this is not that revival. I'm talking about the original. Oh. Les Mis. someone was supposed to go into the Broadway production of Les Mis for like a year or so as Eponine, and she turned it down to go into a Michael Mayer musical that was having an out of town tryout at La Jolla. I have no idea. Miss Sutton Foster. Uh, very thoroughly. Wow. Thoroughly. Yeah. It, she wasn't, and as we all know, she wasn't even playing the lead. She was understudying the lead. So, ladies and germs, let this be a lesson to all of you. Uh, if you get offered the chance to play Eponine and then <laughs> yeah, at the same time get a chance to be in a Michael Mayer musical, even if you're like the fourth swing to the left, take the Mayer musical. It's going to be good for you. You right. you shut down. No, no disrespect to Miss Eponine. 
Ebony Tenardier, if you're nasty, but oh. <laughs> not her surname. She, no one calls her by her surname, and I'm like <laughs> Mademoiselle Tenardier, if you're nasty. Uh, let's let's call her what she is. But yes, that was I remember that was sort of the big tea about that was um, everyone thought Leah was crazy for turning down a sure thing with Les Mis when everyone's like yeah. Spring Awakening, that thing's going to be gone by January, and they. They stuck it out. They had a very rough go of their first like six months. Um, they sort of hinted on this in the documentary, but they didn't really kind of explain that. Like they opened, I think, in November of 06 and the Tonys were not yeah. until June of 07. So they had about seven months where it was like they were really kind of gone by the skin of their teeth and just like praying and praying that the Tonys would work out for them. And it did. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert. It did. Uh Dylan, in a very on. very busy year though i mean it was a crazy season yeah well yes it was a crazy season and we will also sort of get into my tony drama of this year uh okay i okay. i have a narrative gents of tending to not root for the musical that's gonna win best musical not by design i just i'm always sort of rooting for the show that i feel like no one else is rooting for and it kind of started with uh oh four season because i loved wicked i was a burgeoning Gaben. And so I loved Wicked. I thought Avenue Q was delightful, but I had just seen Carolina change and it blew my mind. I was like, I think I want this one. Didn't happen. Mm. The following year, Piazza. I was like, I want Piazza. If not Piazza, then Spelling Bee. If not Spelling Bee, then Dirty Brown Scoundrels. And guess what wins? Those are Jersey Boys? No, that was the following year. The year... The year of Piazza. Oh, Spamalot, Spamalot. Spamalot. Spamalot won, which is not a bad musical, but it was the worst of the four. I know. Uh, but I always forget that Spelling Bee didn't win. It didn't, It won book, which is fun. Okay. Uh, the wealth was, was kind of spread. Yeah, it was Spelling Bee won book, Piazza won score, Spamalot won musical, which is so odd. Uh, the following year was Jersey Boys v. Drazzy Chaperone. Team Chaperone, Obvi. Uh, mm. We love Sutton Foster's Cooter Slam. Like that's. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that woman has uh, created more gay men than any gay man in the world. Like, yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, she's she has been a lot of our own Ring of Keys moments. Uh, then for Spring Awakening year, it was I was Team Grey Gardens, and I think I was mm. the only teenager at the time who was a theater kid who was Team Grey Gardens. Because when I tell you that everyone else, and I mean everyone else was Spring Awakening, it was like with such a fervor that I almost lost friends that year. Wow. Yeah. And I wasn't anti-Spring Awakening. I was She's just different. She's different. Yeah. Um. Now, Connor, Dylan, for those who live under a rock or who are uncultured, what is Spring Awakening about? What's What's the plot? Who, she, who is she? Well, she's a young girl in, you know, 1892 Germany, basically. Not only a young girl, but maybe a group of young boys and girls who are in living in this repressed, you know, pre-war society. But it's based on a play written by Frank Vatikant, who was, you know, very prolific of his time. And I think it ended up getting banned and different things like that. But it was sort of with, stayed within the zeitgeist as this revealing piece. And... It was adapted by Duncan Sheik and Steven Sater in, I think it was in the late nineties. And it's these kids who basically are going through the, their adolescence, puberty, some might even say, and confronting all of the different things that start to happen to you, whether it be, you know, an identity type crisis or, you know, your body is changing, your mind is developing 
and the way that they intermingle with each other and the adults that sort of shape the society that they're in. And it's all scored by contemporary rock and roll slash pop music, which creates a bit of a tension between this sort of classic book meets this modern music. And it won every single best musical award it could possibly win in 2007. Mm. Connor, rebuttal? You know, Dylan dropped the mic, but I will say I think it's the only musical ever where there's someone masturbating for the entirety of a song that's a pop um, up-tempo. My for junk. the entirety of the song, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the entirety, for sure. Yeah, right, right, there, right. Yeah, I think we could probably name three or four where it's like a verse. Um, <laughs> he can't, they came too soon in those. I mean, um, Gayle, that's a very specific wait, no, Hanshin, wording, Connor, Connor. Very specific wording. <laughs> Hanshin really went for it. He really, he was edging for the entirety of that number. But no, for sure. Dylan, Dylan nailed it. Dylan, I don't know how you did that. He did a wonderful job. Uh, would we call it edging, or he's just constantly interrupted by his cock-blocking father? <laughs> that too. Yeah, I was. So I was sort of looking into the play itself because have you, either of you read the original play or never? No. Although I think we bought it for we one of it. us. One of it got was got it for the other for like a birthday or Christmas because we were so obsessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we I don't know everything. If, I don't know if we ever really got through the text. You know. Yeah. It's well, and you know, with all these foreign plays that get translated, the translation changes based on who does it. Uh, it's it is an odd play in the same way that like, and I hate to you know bring it back to all the things I love, but like to mirror it with like Carousel and Lillian, right? Like. I know people think of Spring Awakening the musical as sort of an odd duck, and she is. Um, and you know, I very few musicals I would argue like objectively perfect. We can always find things to acknowledge when, I, and we shall in a very uh, constructive way. But reading the original play earlier this week, I have to give Steven Sater some credit because the original play is uh, odd. It's extraordinarily bleak. Uh, he makes a couple of changes for the better for a musical, I should say. The play opens with Venla in her like little schoolgirl doll doll dress. Her kindergarten thing. dress. Her as kindergarten her mother dress. says. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it gives me very um Suri and Thirty Rock vibes when Tina Fey tells Suri very like, much. She's like, yeah, like you need to wear like this like giant cardigan or whatever. And Suri's like, I can make this hot, and she basically like turns it into a bra of some sort. That's Venla's like, oh, yes, this, the dress that fit me when I was 10. I'm wearing it now as a 14 year old. So it barely <laughs> covers my vagina. Um, <laughs> that's that scene opens the original play. But then it goes into basically Venla and her mom. She says to her mom, like, you ever think about death? And then it just goes to the next scene. The whole scene about like the stork and how do babies get made? That's way later. I think that's like oh. end of act one. And yeah, a whole lot of other stuff. Um the character of Anna of the four girl group uh, is not in the original play. It's just Marta, Taya, and Venla. Ilsa, of course, comes in later. Um, the more, the, sorry, the Melchior Venla storyline is way rougher. Uh, right. Yeah, I don't know if you guys uh, have looked into this part, but uh, spoiler alert: how does how does Act One of the musical Spring Awakening end? Connor, you take this one. They make love in a hayloft while their friends push a um, a swing around and they sing about how they believe that there's love in heaven, ultimately. Ultimately that. And of the two of them, who actually knows what it is that they're doing? The boy. The boy, Melchior. Melchior understands what sex is and how it works and the consequences of doing it. Whereas Venla has absolutely no idea. In the musical 
All she knows is that it feels good. She likes it. And she does eventually relent because Melchior is like, why should we let ourselves not do this just because people say it's wrong? In the play, uh, we hate to you know, say this word too often, but like in the play, it's fully a rape. Whereas in the okay. musical, it's a little more gray area because like while she is enjoying it, she doesn't actually know what it is that they're doing. And that is its own form of sexual abuse. In the play, she fully is just like, she's so confused and doesn't know what's happening. And the last line of act two of the play is Melchior don't. And so right, it's, I, yeah. yeah oh. Which like, I don't think that, Dylan, how do you say the name again? Frank Vedekind. Yes. Frank Vedekind. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I don't think Vedekind was saying like, isn't this romantic? He was being like, the whole point of the play is children have urges mankind is awful and we're all toxic and you know we're just meat bags roaming the earth the way the play ends ends uh it has you know melchior coming to the gravesite spoiler alert some people die uh with the character of moritz who kills himself when his grades are poor and his dad's like i'll disown you and then uh venla dies of a botched abortion because uh when you aren't practicing a procedure like that safely you're most likely going to die. Uh, remember that, guys. Uh, we're not political on this podcast, but we are at the same time. Uh, <laughs> because what Venla doesn't realize is when you have sex with Jonathan Groff and you let him finish inside you, <laughs> babies happen. Uh, just if you're Leah Michelle, not if you're me. I've tried many times with Jake <laughs> Groff and it just hasn't happened yet. I keep waiting. I, you, you said it. You said it before I could, Matt. You you beat me to the punch. Oh, you sorry, know, would you like would you like the punch? <laughs> it's interesting to talk about. <laughs> complex characters like Melchior because I wonder if Spring Awakening came out today mm-hmm. if audiences would be responding to specifically that story point in a way that's um they're calling it too offensive or cancelable or whatever because ultimately you know he is like a 14 year old boy who does know what sex is and what it can lead to and he does have sex with you know Venla. Um, and I'm not saying I condone that act, but I am saying I do like in art when there are characters who are making mistakes, imperfect, being complicated, making the audience think this is wrong and or this is right or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder, you know, when Spring Awakening came out in 2006, it would have been a totally different conversation, which I'm sure still happened. But I, I imagine now audiences would probably be like, no, there's a rape in that show, a a deliberate rape from our hero. And I think Mm. audiences would probably think of it differently. Don't you guys think? Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, I, I, my ultimate uh, annoyance with quote unquote theater criticism is when people say something is um, uh, cringe. I don't think that's an actual criticism. Uh, we have to discuss sort of the intention of a moment. And again, you know, you're talking to someone who's favorite musical is Carousel. And so, you know, there are, at, I would argue a show that's ultimately about how like people who are unhappy and are drowning, make really messy, awful decisions and keep making bad decisions. And it blows up in all their faces. And then it's like, well, how do you put yourself back together after everything's fallen apart? And spring awakening is a little bit the same way. Uh, and ironically, Connor, with what you bring up, like, the the show was controversial when it first came out in the early 1900s and the musical was controversial as well and it still remains controversial and it's ironic because the whole theme of the show is like well if we don't talk about these things they're still going to happen just it's going to happen mm-hmm. with much more dire consequences so we at least have to talk about it um yeah and yeah i mean for sure I, yeah and the musical i think is a little more empathetic 
to the characters and Melchior in particular. And like, you can't have Jonathan Groff as your lead and have him just be like a toxic rapist. You know, I mean, you could, right. that's we, we, in some ways we love this casting, but as right. Melchior is like our hero, it's a little more gray area because it's, there's, there's a, there's a love in the musical. Whereas the play, there isn't much love. He's a bit ah. more of kind of a blowhard kid. And, uh, the the play ends not with Venla and Moritz's ghosts, but with Moritz's ghost with his head blown off. So he's carrying his head, and you better believe they make jokes about it. Uh, and basically, Moritz is like, "Being dead is amazing. I I love it so much more than being alive. Come be dead with me, Melchior." And then a dude who we never know what his name is, he's just known as the Masked Man, right. comes on stage because you know. Uh, any masked man in a cemetery in the middle of the night who's talking to a 14-year-old boy is instantly trustworthy. Chills. <laughs> Creepy Love chills. It. It's like, this should be a horror movie. He basically tells Melchior, he's like, don't listen He's like, don't listen to the ghost boy whose head is in his hands for some reason. He's like, come with me. I will tell you all the things about adulthood so you won't be struggling anymore. And, Mar- and Melchior's like, the fuck is this? And Moritz goes, eh, go with him. I was lying. Being dead's kind of awful. I just wanted you to be with me. And that's oh. how the play ends. And, interesting yeah whereas i think the musical i think again Sater's like so we're cutting the masked man <laughs> it's like what if we brought back venla because you know we need to bring up back our leading lady and we, and we put a song here and it's a lot more hopeful uh, whereas the play it's a little kind of um foreboden that's not the right word totally. but it sounds right interesting and I, and I think they remove any element of moritz trying to convince melchior to to take his own life because him and venla appearing it is they they each sort of are like on his shoulders but they're not devil and angel in my opinion they're both kind of saying there's more to learn there's more to experience in life yeah the, the thing that the documentary said that i appreciated because i never really thought of it this way in the cemetery scene towards the end melchior you know has escaped from reform school and he's gonna you know run off with venla so he thinks before he realizes that she has died and uh, in his despair, Moritz's ghost comes out and sings the Those You've Known reprise. And Melchior's instinct is while thinking of Moritz, great, you had the right idea. I'm going to take my own life. And as mm-hmm. Dylan said, like he, it's not Moritz telling him to do it. It's just the memory of Moritz triggers that for Melchior. As soon as he's about to do it, Venla's ghost appears and she starts to sing. And the difference between the two is Moritz took his own life. Venla did not choose to die. And it reminds Melchior in its own way, like, you still have the gift of being alive. Don't just take it for granted and take it away. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, and unlike Moritz, who truly felt like there was nothing left to live for, like Melchior, it's almost as if him killing himself was going to be like a political act. In fact, you know what? I'm going to go on. Mm. A, I'm going to go on a limb out here, and and bear with me. We're in. I think Melchior is a great stand-in for a lot of our modern-day brethren who are incredibly smart and insightful and empathetic, but are more activists in theory than in human action. Like Mm. can think about mankind as a general concept and analyze it from afar, but can't really understand the nitty gritty, messy emotional stuff, which Connor was mentioning earlier about sort of like what makes the show not cancelable. And Mm -hmm. I think Melchior is sort of like if, if Melchior we're watching Spring Awakening on stage. He'd be like, "No, 
this is cancelable. Bef- that Act One, Mel- <laughs> Act One Melchior would be saying this mm-hmm, by the yeah. end of the show. I think Melchior realizes that musical Spring Awakening is not cancelable, and I think in the movie version, it ends with him writing the play Spring Awakening. <laughs> oh, oh, of course it does. You know, he's been journaling throughout the whole thing. You know, it's going to turn into his manifesto. Exactly. He's Joe March, and the play is Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> actually yeah. that's interesting yeah, the movie that's been circling the drain for years that who knows if it will ever actually happen but yeah we need well in fairness to the play the one director who was circling it was mick g and much as i love the first charlie's angels that's not a director that necessarily gets a blank check to do what he wants i love the second charlie's angels yeah AKA we charlie's we, angels yeah all throttle why it oh, has everything it's... you oh. could possibly need in any film. I'm so, no, okay. We're not talking about Spring Waking for at least five <laughs> more minutes until both of you make this case. Take it's it away, unreal. Atticus Finch. It's the... there is not a better film. Mm-hmm. There's girl power. There's cameos. There's sexuality that's owned, not exploited. There's a fallen Pink, angel. Yeah, Pink there's is in it. Demi Moore is in it. Drew Barrymore, the Olsen twins. You know, you've got Shia LaBeouf. Is his career is about to take off? It's camp. It's mm-hmm. it's about sisterhood. Oh. And you have you have um, Jen Aniston's ex with the gray sweatpants, Justin Thoreau, Justin doing Thoreau. an Irish accent. Mm-hmm. But you got you got hot men. You have incredible stunts. You have John Cleese. Like inter- misinterpreting innuendos, well paced. Mm-hmm. It's camp. There's a whole a- musical sequence at a strip club to the Pink Panther theme. An end credit sequence that calls back to scenes seen and not seen in the film. Any really way you want it up. by Journey. I mean, it's got everything, except for like you know, a cohesive plot. Perhaps, perhaps they're, they're going for the rings. They have to get the rings. They also have Melissa McCarthy. I mean, it's so good. Bernie to, Mac. To be to be fair, I have not seen the film in about eighteen years. The thing I remember is what's his face from Back to the Future, the creepy man, the one who plays yeah. Michael J. Fox's dad in Back to the Future, mm-hmm. with his hair thing. Like yeah. loves to, uh-huh. he loves to pull the hair of women and sniff it. Which you know, Kristen Glover, I think, is the actor's name. Crispin Glover, yes, and I and I've been there. I've I've been I've done the hair pull out and sniff it because you know well, you only yeah. live once. Mm-hmm. But, I did hear that about you. Thank you, thank you very much. But there's a moment with him and Drew Barrymore where like they almost kiss and connect, and then I think he gets murdered. Right? He does. He does. He does. And he Drew does. Barrymore lets out a scream, like she they is scream Claire at Danes. each other. Yeah. yeah, she's she's Claire Danes in Romeo plus Juliet, and he's Leo in Romeo plus Juliet. And I'm like, girl, you just started to like him four seconds ago. Right. And right. His, I just remember seeing that being like, I'm sorry, what movie are you watching? I will say, in its in its defense, it is the rise of Demi Moore, and she, speaking of an actress who knows what film she is in and rising to the challenge, she does the damn thing. She does. Mm-hmm. She absolutely does. I love that movie. We should read last cameo. Carrie Fisher is in it as Mother Superior. Anyways, we'll move on. Speaking Wait, what? Of, um, yes, I don't remember a, that at all. Yes, it's a blink or you miss it cameo. It's actually like a five minute sequence. It's mostly narration about the creepy thin man's past. Because when he was a young boy, he went to a nunnery and they raised him and she's the mother superior there. And they were anti-sex, which is why he's always pulling the hair out of women. (laughs) I don't know. They don't really explain why. It's an inexplicable. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, back to Spring Awakening. Well, I was going to say, because Creepy Thin Man sounds like one of the children from Spring Awakening when things (laughs) don't go right for them as they grow older. It's the best 
what is a song that you keep coming back to in this show? Okay. The one that that I and this is a deep cut because it's not this part the part of it is not on the cast album. It is the final version of the song of Purple Summer. Mm-hmm. It's the beginning solo for Ilsa. She has an extended extended line. And it's I think the thesis statement of the show. It's about listening to children. It's children will listen vibes, but it's basically acknowledging like, hey, kids are just figuring all this shit out. They need to be guided. They also need to have the freedom to explore. They have, you know, they have their whole lives ahead of them, hopefully. And one day, all of these bad things that have happened to them or these bad thoughts, these hard things will not be so hard. And they will get to experience the peace and beauty of life that lays ahead of them. The song of purpose. Honor, Summer, you know, you got me weepy. And, and she, so, and that's what I, I love this, that part of the song. I don't know why. I mean, I loved when Steffi D would sing it on the spring awakening first national tour that we saw, I think five times, but mm. um, I love that it ends with Ilsa because, well, she's the only character that kind of survives at the end, hypothetically, but also yeah. she's a dream in, in a way. She's a legend. There are some who still live at the end of that show. Yeah. But I think she is the one who has probably been through the most, mm-hmm. even though a she, lot of it yeah. happens before the play and a lot of it off stage. But she's sort of the ultimate survivor of the, of the show. For sure. And even and her presence like the in the grounded. show. She's like yeah, the most like, yeah. together. And her presence in the show. I love this theory that maybe she is or isn't there in many of the scenes. I mean, in the dark, I know well, we know that she's it's it's she's not with. Marta when Elsa's singing and when she appears to Moritz is it a figment of his imagination he of course had heard about her but is she really there and I kind of love the idea they never look at each other in the direction that's how Michael Mayer directed it for that reason so was she there and I love that she's kind of this legend who's maybe gotten through the hard bits and the song of purple summer itself is such a beautiful finale it really because you do go through all this darkness but I love that you see all the kids on stage and the doors open up and Melchior comes back through and he's ready to dive into the rest of his life on a hopeful note. And I just think it's a beautiful song, even though I have no idea what a purple summer is. No one actually does. Yeah, no one does. Well, okay. So, Dylan, <laughs> Dylan, don't don't think we're forgetting about you. You're, you're coming mm. up next, girl. Okay. I took to Instagram last night as I was watching the documentary in prep and then watching the um the boot of the OBC again, uh, which by the way, for anyone who hasn't watched the documentary, uh, I have some notes, but overall it is a very effective documentary. The number one highlight and something that I'm not, it's a double-edged sword where I'm like, I don't think this is absolutely necessary to the story we're telling. However, I can't imagine my life anymore. Not knowing this information is the moment when Leah, Michelle and Jonathan Groff talk about the day she showed him her vagina because he asked. And right. it's specific, specifically because Jay Groff <laughs> was like, I didn't quite know where the clitoris was. We actually asked Chris Rodriguez about it when she came back to do our show in um, in November. Mm-hmm. And we were like, had you heard this story before? Like, did they talk? Did you know this happened? And she goes, no, I did not know that they did this. But was I surprised that it happened? Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. I had a feeling. But what's funny is, as we learned in the doc, Jonathan didn't come out of the closet until a month after Spring Awakening ended. But he's telling, he's like, you know, fully in his early 20s, telling his BFF, Leah, I don't know what a vagina looks like, but he, she's supposed to be under the assumption that he's 
not gay. I don't know. It's like a funny moment, but I had plenty of those when I was closeted too. So I'm not. It, yeah. Jonathan in Spring Awakening was a bit of a glass closet situation. And this, we'll, we'll weave in and out of this rather than do sections. Welcome to the podcast. We have no structure. But <laughs> so I was, you know, again, I was a theater kid in the city and I, I eventually actually did like the first open call that Spring Awakening did when the show was open and might have gotten called back once or twice. It's fine. Didn't book, but it's okay. Oh. We're not better. We're not, we ain't better. But at the time that the show was first on Broadway and it was still the OBC, there were one or two cast members who I did not know, but had one degree of separation from through teachers or friends or whatnot. And um, again, this is sort of like the double edged sort of seeing, you know, inside the room where it happens you yeah. hear some things that are super awesome and some things are like questionable and one person in the cast was like oh yeah um jonathan and i like go back to his apartment all the time hang out with his quote-unquote roommate and do carol channing impressions all day long and the whole ca- and it's you know because everyone's being respectful no one's like jonathan what are you doing but everyone's just kind of looking at each other being like okay so um <laughs> whenever he's ready he'll tell us like it was it was very much everyone knew <laughs> absolutely everybody knew it's not that he was in denial it's just that he wasn't saying anything and in his and again in his defense it was a time where like when you came out as an actor that's all you got cast to do um and and he was right because when he did eventually like come out even more publicly because there was a moment in 2009 when the hair revival was on broadway and jonathan groff and gavin creel were on the steps of the capitol marching for marriage equality right and everyone was like excuse me is jonathan groff out of the closet now and then it became this whole thing like there was an article about how like well gay actors can't play straight because we all know they're gay and they like listed jonathan as the number one issue my point being purple summer i did a poll and i said everyone what the fuck does purple summer mean Do, uh, does anyone know what these lyrics mean and there were three options yes i do know and i will dm you the second one was lol no something about corn and shit and then the third one was who cares it's a bop and lyrics are stupid now, 48% said they had no idea, thought it was not corn. 45% said it's a Bob who cares. And only 7% said they absolutely knew. That said, many of the people who said they had no idea were people who have been in Spring Awakening, either <laughs> on Broadway or on the national tour. Again, not naming names. Uh, but one person who has been in Spring Awakening professionally in one of the two major productions on Broadway, again, not saying who, sent me a message and he said do you actually want to know and i said yes please this wasn't a joke and these this is what he said purple summer is a flower didn't know that according to steven Sater, purple summer represents the time of maturation a time when the fields will yield crops and the horses bear foals again it is the time when the painful spring of adolescence reaches the maturity of summer similar to what connor was saying a perfect coda to the show that we have just watched uh, a poetic it gets better if you will uh, mm. i had a few people dm me similar things my only thing was they were like you know how the painful hardships of winter will melt away to a beautiful summer and i didn't say this to them because i love my fans but i did have a moment where i was like you know that winter doesn't go into summer yes there is a whole season in between one might even say the title of the show we are discussing
it's essentially it gets better and i think in the documentary Sater talks about like purple being sort of like the color of a bruise so you're bruised but you're gonna heal and you'll move on and yes yeah it's all freshman lit and we're not mad about it dylan yeah song you come back to all the time uh you know i this is a mostly no skips album for me and i have to say it changes constantly but i will say the guilty ones is probably my my favorite song i'm such a ballad queen Mm. i just love i think leah's voice has never sounded better than on that album it's so gentle it's this gentle part of her voice Mm. and i just think it's it really captures so much of the show in and it was a song that was later added but it it is just so beautiful to me and the staging is incredible in the original staging that was Mm -hmm. on broadway it's this act two opener sort of interlaced with a a church sermon Mm -hmm. and it's them trying of grappling with what did we just do should we feel terrible but it's it's a way from you know from what i've learned over the years it was a way for the writers to communicate that it wasn't rape and that they both feel good about what happened and you know, even though their bodies might be guilty for committing this sin, that their their minds and hearts are still comfortable with what happened because maybe it was love, yeah, or something new. Yeah, it's a it's again, it's 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 much more of a gray area. There's again, it's, there's the political element of knowledge that makes it tricky, but it is consensual in a lot of ways. Uh, guilty ones, first of all, that's the nickname for Spring Awakening fans, as we know. Absolutely, they're in the room with us now. <laughs> yeah, all of all of the guilty ones are here everyone yes yeah. in a way in a way um that was perhaps one of the only songs so when i saw it on on the b-way with the original cast no big deal um i'm just i'm just old and i lived in the city it's fine but you every, city kids us city kids i'm telling you that was the only number when i saw i so i saw it pretty soon after it opened so like a 70 percent full eugene o'neill theater and there were a couple of uh, I went with my grandmother, by the way, God bless Nanny. For, uh, uh, this is the same woman who took me to Piazza and Carolina change. So she like a uh, good woman uh, cultured. She is a cultured fuck. Uh, we she loved it. I remember she loved it so much. Uh, and I was like, it's cute. But the people around us, they didn't they couldn't get on board with the choreography. I remember. So like they liked the song Touch Me, but they didn't like the whole like boob circling thing. And the only number that they actually all audibly started to laugh at was Guilty Ones. And Mm. I don't know why. I think it was just the visual of Leah Michelle having just been plowed out of her mind. And Jonathan Groff asking if, you know, if she's too wobbly or whatever. And her immediate reaction is to pull out a microphone. I understood it. I got the vocabulary, especially because at that point we'd seen it done so many times. But everyone else around me was like, girl, let's talk. And she was like, you know about to sing a song uh, yeah. it's it's that it's that um joke that a lot of people think about musicals that i assume schmigadoon loves to do i've never actually watched it but the whole like well why don't you just talk to me well i'd much rather sing mm-hmm. um but it is a beautiful <laughs> song i think the only the scores only crying musically is when miss michelle is belting ease it is with a bunch of other people I need more right. Leah Michelle belted ease on her own. She sounds great, and the harmonies in Mama Who Bore Me Reprise are iconic. But I'm like, I'm sorry. I need some Fs solo for Miss Michelle, please. That's the thing. The crime to me is whispering, which it, it has never sat right with me as a... I mean, it sort oh. of serves as an 11 o'clock number, specifically for Vendla, because there isn't really an 11 o'clock number otherwise. I think those you've known 
is the finale. And then Song of Purple Summer is the sort of postscript epilogue. And Whispering, although the plot moves forward in a series of sort of sequences throughout the song, it is not necessarily a bop. It, it's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily, she doesn't really peak at any point throughout the song. It's just more so a, a park and bark about everything she's gone through throughout the show. 100%. And I wanted maybe some, maybe some belting. Something. If, if she had a better final moment alive, I think that maybe Leah would have been nominated for a Tony. Well... Well, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. Let's get into it. I don't care. This is a natural progression. Let's talk about these Tonys for a second. Yes. This was what we might call a rather stacked leading actress year. Mm -hmm. We And also, I want to just tell everyone this now, uh, because this is going to come up in conversation for next week's episode. Uh, We love to undermine a frontrunner. We love to question a sure thing. For example, when Hamilton was out, the night of the Tonys, the number of people I was with who were just like, but like, what if Hamilton doesn't win? Like, what if so many people people are just sure it's going to win that they were like, oh, I don't know, I'll vote for Shuffle Along. Meanwhile, I was like, I would love nothing more. I love Hamilton, but I was also like, I want Shuffle Along to get recognition. But that was the year where it was Christine Ebersol or die. It was, there was no one else. There was okay. absolutely no one else. But I don't know if either of you were brave enough to look at the message boards yet this year. The message boards loved, loved, loved to say, I don't know. There's Donna Murphy in love music. I don't know. There's Audra and 110 in the shade. And it's like, okay, we've got Donna Murphy in love music, which, you know, I saw and I still don't remember it. We've got Audra and 110 in the shade. Babe did a cartwheel, an aerial flip, a cartwheel with no hands. Iconique. However, it is a roundabout revival. It's a little difficult to win in those. Um right. Then we had Laura Bell Bundy, Legally Blonde, once again iconic. The only other place where Leah could have really gotten in was to replace Deborah Monk in Curtains. Now, here is where this is a little tricky. There was another actress that year who was not nominated. Do we know who it was? I do. Well, there was two, actually, in my opinion. One was Kristen Chenoweth for The Apple Tree. Yes. And the other was? The other was... um, Mary Poppins, which Ashley was um, Ashley Brown. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is a stacked theater <laughs> season. Absolutely. People are talking about this like leading actress in musical lineup for this year. And I'm like, oh, honey, you haven't seen nothing yet. This is five <laughs> inches compared to the 12 inch dick that 2007 was. Um, <laughs> Ashley Brown, I remember, was considered a bit of a disappointment only because all of us had heard Laura Michelle Kelly on the London cast recording who had and won, she the, won the Olivier. Sure did. And rightfully so, because that bitch sings the house down on that score. Like, it sounds so fucking easy. Caramel melted all over my face. I'm just like, sing me to my death, Laura Michelle Kelly. And Ashley, I remember everyone thought was a little too, not harsh, but like hard. Like, just a little too Broadway. It wasn't quite British enough. It wasn't quite effervescent. Uh, I think Belter when I think Ashley Brown. I don't necessarily think light and airy Julie Andrews, Laura Michelle Kelly. Yes. And not her fault. She made the role work for her, but it wasn't the natural fit that it should have been. Uh, But still, leading lady in a title role of a major hit, Disney, was a musical nominee. And then we had Chenoweth, who was the sole reason that Apple Tree came to Broadway from Encores. And like one of the hardest roles in musical theater, one of the most like shadow of the original looming over Barbara Harris and the apple tree. So for Chenoweth not to get in, it's I'm like, I hear you, Dylan. And like, I do think 
I agree with you as well, Connor. Like, if Vemma had one more, like, before I go moment, I think Leah would have had a shot. But it's a little hard to say for sure when even Chenoweth couldn't get in. But let me plead for something. Lead away, baby. I don't know. Okay. Vendla is technically the leading female performance in the show, but I would say she's got as much stage time as Moritz and maybe less to do vocally even than Moritz because she doesn't have touch me solos. She doesn't have bitch, you know, there are things I don't even think she's seeing. Yeah. So I wonder if they could have figured out a way to put Vendla in featured actress. We it would be a category, category fraud. But if you're looking at who has stage time on this and she's in it just as much as Moritz, why not? It's Melchior's story. Well, then on that note, let us look at featured actress in a musical, shall we? We have the winner, <laughs> Mary Louise Wilson in Grey Gardens, who was never not going to win. Uh, okay. We have Orfe in Legally Blonde. Amazing. We have my winner, my winner, my winner, my winner. Oh, well, you're young. Uh, we have... <laughs> We have Rebecca Luker in Mary Poppins, which I remember at the time everyone was like, oh, okay. No one was mad about it, but it was a little odd. Well, uh, she got to sing being Mrs. Banks. I mean, and yes. that's just, you know. It, and it and it, it felt right. Um, <laughs> no, again, no one was mad about it, but it felt more like, Rebecca Luker, we like you. We don't necessarily love your show. Um, so it was Orfe, Mary Louise Wilson, Rebecca Luker, I think Karen Ziemba for Curtains, who... Yeah. I remember she had um, a major dance piece of the, in Act One of Curtains that just was like reminding us all that she was Karen Ziemba. And then who was our fifth? It Charlotte was Charlotte Dambois. Yeah. In Chorus Line. Yeah. Which that is technically where Cassie should be. Talk about category fraud, Donna McKechnie. Right. Because the Donna McKechnie won for lead. Sure did. But sure, sure did. You know. But but then we wouldn't have gotten the incredible win for Emily Gilmore in, in Featured back then for. Absolutely. And Kelly Bishop deserved that Tony. For Sheila, I'm, right? It's Sheila? Mm-hmm. Sheila Bryant. Okay. She, really, she, uh, Sheila Rosemary Bryant, which she really hates. Uh, oh, right. right. Of course. Yes. Your uh, brain is amazing. Thank you. I had no friends growing up. Um, so, <laughs> but Leah. I don't know. I don't know. Was Leah good in the show? I didn't get to see her. So I don't know. That's the other thing. I remember at the time, like, so Leah, like she was on the posters with Jay Groff, right? Like they, it was them. They were the, the marketing of the show and they were the face of the show for a very long time. So there was sort of a feeling of Leah, Jonathan and John Gallagher Jr. were like the trio. Mm-hmm. And I know she got a drama desk nomination, but it still kind of felt like everyone was really just talking about the boys more than they were talking about her in terms of performances. And rewatching Even she the- bared her boobies. Wow, that's really something. Listen, Kelly O'Hara did the same thing and she didn't get nominated for Dracula. So sometimes you don't show your chesticles if you want to be taken seriously. But Ivy Lynn did it in the Bombshell musical on Smash and ultimately, spoiler alert, won the Tony. Yes. So, but anyway. But she did have to live in the Smash multiverse. And I don't know if that's really a win. <laughs> Tough to digest that one, Matt. Tough. Yes, a world where Catherine McPhee is considered special. I don't know if I want to live in that world. Mama who bore me, mama who gave me no way to handle things, who made me so sad. Mama the weeping, mama the angels, no sleep in heaven or Bethlehem. Some pray that one day, one day, Christ will come a calling. 
Anywho, um, watching the bootleg again, I don't know if I necessarily think Leah was great in the show. Her acting has improved a lot since Spring Awakening. Have you seen her in in The Girl? That is funny. We have. She she gave the performance of the season in Funny Girl. Oh yeah, no, she's incredible in the show. And, and by my season, in, I mean, yeah, it's a new season, and season. she's still giving. You know, no, any uh, any season. It's I. <sighs> So this is, okay, this is another part we can talk about. And we will tread lightly because we know people. We don't want to put anyone on blast. We don't want to share any information that no one consented to sharing. But, you know, sure, Leah has had a lot of backlash against her for a lot of things that it came out of the woodwork about her behavior over the last 20-ish years. A lot of which, honestly, I was not there for, but I have confirmation from many sources. True. I love people learning and growing and becoming better. And I like to think that that's what's happening with her. So I did go into the show being like, okay, Leah, let's see. And then by the end of like 20 minutes in tax one, I was like, this is the performance of the year. This is the performance last five years. Uh, But there was, there were issues with the original company of spring awakening. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to spill too much tea. All I'll say is there is something Immediate success is really difficult to grapple with, especially if you're young. And that cast was young. And while the show did not take off commercially for a while, it found its fan base very early. And that fan base was very passionate. And I hate to use this word because I find it overused, but it was rather toxic. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. As many fandoms can be. But that that was a fandom similar to the Rent fandom, where it was like, understudies were considered lesser than or some understudies were considered better than so if somebody was off and the understudy was on it was either you like oh everyone rushed to see the show because blank is out and we all know that they're terrible go see the understudy who like should be bumped up anyway or and like very vocal about it sending these kind of things to the cast and then the cast again like and this is like one of my notes about the documentary groff sauce was like you know, it's crazy. The success didn't go to any of our heads. I'm like, Groff Sauce, I'm sure it didn't go to your head because you are. I an clocked angel that moment too, Matt. I clocked it too. I was like, he he is blissfully ignoring. It had to. It did. I don't. I don't care what they're saying. It had to, and I don't blame them for it or judge them for it. They were no. the toast of the town. They were, and a lot and- of them. You know what? Still are. That's well, the crazy part. We don't begrudge them on it now because we're all older, we're all wiser, and we look back. Uh, to quote Katya, if you're not looking back on the previous year embarrassed, you're doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you know, it, Leah's journey is a lot like Melchior's. You know, we make mistakes, we stumble, we fumble, we might mistreat others, allegedly. But at the end of the day, don't we all deserve a redemption and to enter that purple summer? So Exactly. Well, and again, it's it's braver and more impressive to grow from a toxic place and become a healthier person. Uh, and if we don't allow people the room to do that, then who knows what damage we're doing. I don't, and this isn't even like to put Leon last. I'm, I'm really talking about like the show at large and it's not just the original company. It was the replacements. It was the national tour. And again, not going to speak out of school, but I am friendly with a lot of people involved with that show. And because I've been known to be opinionated and not afraid to say things, a lot of them will come to me and be like, you cannot say it's me, but I have tea for you. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sharing any of it. Cause I do think like the moment I share any of it, people will be like, Oh, I know exactly who that is. Um, <laughs> so were you telling your spring awakening affiliated, you know, friends like, Hey, I'm doing essay on the pod. 
what should I stay away from or what should I say? Do you have any fun scoop for me? Did you did you reach out to sort of your circle for that? I didn't even have to. I when <laughs> I posted on my story yesterday, I posted on my story yesterday about the documentary. They yeah. all fucking flooded my DMs. And I and I was like, do you want anything to share? And they're like, not to share, but I'll tell you. Um, and some of them were a little more guarded. Some of them fully said stuff. But like, you know, that show it was a blessing to everyone involved with it, right? It launched so many careers. It opened doors and, and amazing things. But there is a little bit of a Vaseline over the lens in that documentary, especially with Groff. And I think because with Groff, like, he is truly an angel on this earth and like the one, maybe the one person in all of Broadway that you will not find a single person in this world who has a bad interaction with him. Even the nicest person you can think of, there's like a disgruntled usher or a merch person or someone at the stage or it's like, <laughs> oh, I, they caught them on a bad day. And it's like, ah, Cheryl Renee Scott wouldn't sign my playbill because she had a head cold, that bitch. Um, like it's <laughs> even something as simple as that. Jay Groff is the one person where you're never going to, you're never going to hear that. But it is a little like, I'm sure it wasn't bad for you, babe, but like it, all it takes is one little poke. And the only reason I bring this up is because it's ironic connecting it to Spring Awakening, which is the whole, we don't like to talk about the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that feel unpleasant, but you kind of have to, if you're going to make it through. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I'm, and you know, for whatever happened back then, I think that when they reunited, it was, you know, last year, two years ago for the, for the documentary, mm-hmm. they were adults now. You know, they'd lived whole lives and many of them were still in high school. I mean, a few of them were still in high school when Spring Awakening was even on Broadway. And, you know, of that main group, I have to believe that, you know, they all had to come up, to come together on a certain common ground to do that reunion. You see pictures of a lot of them being moms now and a lot of them still being friends and things like that. There's people you don't see in those photos that maybe were more out of the spotlight, like those Springs and understudies and people like that who you know, obviously weren't getting the huge attention at the stage door or things or maybe fan letters, but certainly everyone had their fan, you know, someone was some, was everyone's, how to put this, got that last bit. Um, There was someone was someone else's favorite at all times. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Everyone had their faves in the cast. And so I definitely think no one was probably ignored, but I know there are certain people that we've even had on our show who talk about being in the first replacement cast of spring awakening and the fans being horrible to them and saying things like you weren't as good as so-and-so, or we miss the way that Remy Zakin would sing this line or whatever. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, people don't know how to talk. And I think that the guilty ones um, environment created this insane virtual stage door and community that even I at a young age was like, Oh, you don't walk up to someone at a stage door and say, so where where were you on your vacation for two weeks? Or, oh, we heard that you, you know, are, you know, gluten-free or, you know, like weird yeah. things like that. It's like all the lines were sort of worn down because of the guilty ones. And I don't know. Yeah. So in the Rent episode, we kind of talked about this. Like that was the show where fandom changed, Broadway fandom changed. And there was, and I think part of that is because of the internet, right? Where it was no longer just, oh, you liked the show and you saw it when you could. It was now I got to know everything about the people in the show. Now I have now I have like ownership of the material and the roles and the company members. And that just kind of got worse and worse. And Spring Awakening 
I feel like was sort of the crystallization of stage door fandom culture as we know it today. Uh, as Dylan was saying, you know, of it's not just you have to have an actor in the show you like. It's, oh, I need to know everything about them. I need to know what their favorite candy is. I want to know who they're dating. I want to send them gifts. And again, I, I don't love yucking anyone's yum, depending on the yum. Uh, if your yum is Finding Neverland, spoiler alert, I will absolutely yuck it for you. But I have heard you talk about this on your podcast before. That's how you know she listens, kids. You hate it. <laughs> I do really hate it. It's it, There are shows that I don't think are very good, but I recognize that effort was made. And it's so difficult to make a show, right? It just it, t- it takes so much time and effort. And amazingly talented people have made bad shows in the past. It's no, people rarely try to make a bad show by design. Uh, I get angry yeah. if a show isn't good and I feel like no actual effort was put in. If I feel like it was done by committee, and it was purely done to like become profitable. And uh, Finding Neverland is the number one example of the last like 20 years I can think of where like I sat there and I went, no one tried to make this a good musical. They just tried to make it a marketable musical. And mm-hmm. I was furious, but the glitter storm was great. Laura Michelle Kelly died like a pro. Um, well, I think that's it- what's cool about Spring Awakening is that it's already a great musical. And the subsequent productions have all been so received positively, but like the the messaging is still getting out there, but in such inventive ways. I mean, the the 2015 revival Mm -hmm. where they incorporated American sign language into it and they, they tweaked it and added multiple actors playing different parts. And I think that's the sign, that's the sign of a great revival on a great show telling the same story, but in an interesting way that we just saw a couple years ago, but now we're thinking about it newly. And I think that's what's so cool about Spring Awakening and it, it's uh, the life it's had since 2006. Yeah, I think I, I have, so one of my issues with the show is in my older cynical age, because I've gotten older and I've gotten more cynical, much as I love it, I, I think it's musically speaking, I agree with Dylan, I think it's pretty much musically a no skip. Uh, and and to that wait, really quick to that point the other the one song that is a bop that I did I want to just say this really quick yeah touch me slay sure absolutely incredible the vocals the moment the emotion the swell the choreography the everything it is the lighting a, moments uh, I think it's back to back with my junk right yeah um, basically there's a there's a book scene in between but yeah 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 M- musically thing and they're back to back um. Those two numbers, I think, they're actually pretty similar in terms of how they build with the whole ensemble, but in very different ways. And I am a big fan of the vocal arrangements for both of them and how they they build. Lyrically speaking, I think my favorite song is Bitch of Living. It has my favorite lyric in the show is Moritz's beginning one where he's ting- singing about um, uh, the angel. Uh, g- give me that hand, please. And the itch you can't control. I'll teach you how to uh, handle all the magic in your soul oh we'll work that sorry no a sadness in your soul we'll work that silver magic then we'll aim it at the wall she said love may make you blind kid but i wouldn't mind at all now i love that lyric for many ways the way that it very subtly discusses masturbation and where morris chooses to finish but also (laughs) love may make you blind do we know what that's referring to wouldn't they say that if you if you masturbated or things like that you would your hands would grow hair on them or you might go blind or things yep. might happen to you. You know, there's all these different it's, things. Wait, it's not to the Netflix reality dating competition. Love is blind. It was Steven Sater t- warning us 
in the past. He's like, this is mm. what's coming in the future. Mm. Soothsayer. <laughs> yeah. Soothsayer. And then uh, that's why the original title for Song of Purple Summer was actually called Heartstopper. And Seder is like, no, I'm going to let them be surprised by that one. Mm, uh, mm, mm, mm. It yeah. gets better. I love it. It do. Uh, I love I love that <laughs> lyric, though. I think it's so clever and cheeky. Uh, and I know also it had a lot of criticisms at the time for the forced rhymes or false rhymes, which I get. And some of them I do agree with every now and then there's just one like there's like there's a word that actually rhymes like just like within like an inch that you could have grabbed. But for the most part, I feel like it's, you know, paralleling pop music right where it's like it's the rhyme is the vowel not the actual word they're rhyming it's matching vowel sounds mm-hmm. um like t swift loves to do that it's always like oh yeah, yeah she, and does. Rhyme. she does you're um, talking to two swifties as well so wait i don't I, I feel bad for interrupting you earlier to say like touch me is amazing blah blah blah. but you were saying that as you've gotten older and more cynical how you oh. feel about the show um there's so much about the show that i find very beautiful i find sometimes and this is just it's not necessarily the fault of the show, but rather that it just is catnip for this kind of style of performing. It's very easy to make Spring Awakening self-indulgent because it is a very hard-on-sleeve emotional show. And it's also very abstract. And so there's different ways to present it and different ways to act it. And, you know, we, we've we all performed. We're all performers. We know performers. Nobody loves to showcase that they're feeling something more than a performer. You know, there may be an actor who I saw in a Broadway revival of a play a few years back in an acclaimed revival that they did not get nominated in. And they did something that gave me such Spring Awakening vibes, but it was done earnestly. And it was the hand to face, down to neck, down to chest, down to stomach of just like, I am feeling so much right now. And who was this in what revival? Oh, no, barf. Oh, he didn't mean it sexually, but it's more like, oh, the emotion. Yeah, yeah. The emotions are so overwhelming. They have manifested in my hand and my hand must caress my whole body. And oh, that is such like lazy acting in my opinion. 1000%. But that anyway. shit is so easy to do in Spring Awakening. And so what I love about the original production that I, and I've talked about this on the podcast many years back. So y'all will have to go back like five years to find this. I did not love the last revival, not for not because of the ASL, which I thought was so well incorporated and really did bring a new vibe out to the show and a, a new messaging, which I loved. It was just on a technical musical theater level. I found it sometimes indulgent in the sense that Michael Mayer knew not to linger too often on too many moments, because if you do, you're going to lose your audience in the esotericism of the show. It's like we got to keep things going. For example, when Venla as Leah Michelle runs off stage to get her a bobo they don't dwell on it very much because in something like that like it's the heat of the moment like there's no time to lose we got to get this kid out of you and so it's very frightening and then i'll never forget in the revival because it was like the third time they did this in a row in like 10 minutes when they throw venla off for the abortion everything stops and her mom like walks backstage and everyone's looking at her being like you've just sent your daughter to her grave which would be moving if they hadn't done it like three times prior in act two alone and I would, and that was just I me forgot sitting there, about this. Yeah. And I just remember sitting there being like, see, like, I need, this is where, and Michael Arden is a very good director. And I want to say that now because everything he's done since Spring Awakening. And I, again, I don't think he did a bad job of Spring Awakening. I, there was a lot I liked in it. But then once on the side, I was like, oh, you figured your shit out. Like, you're, you're no longer running into the issues that I had before. And then Christmas Carol was so divine. And I'm looking forward to Parade. 
But that was something I was like, someone needed to sit there with Michael and be like, okay, in order for this moment to land on a musical theater chemical level, where it's just like, add the ammonium, add the sulfur, whatever. I don't go to school for chemistry. But you know, where it's like, it's balancing. Like, okay, for this moment to land, we need to cut the previous two. Mm, Totally. I think, you know, what you were mentioning about sort of an indulgence, it, it lending itself to indulgence. I wonder if when, you know, a production is so memorable in its original staging, that it lends to people always trying to replicate that. And I think that that's an example being the choreography and the, the, the idea of gestures has been something that I think the show has had. I mean, then obviously lending itself to American Sign Language, you know, it's which is all gestures and facial expressions. But the idea of I've never seen a, a production since that hasn't had Vendela touching her body, like doing the swirl around her breasts standing on a chair. I've seen that in every single, and I've, I, I used to seek out productions of Spring Awakening to see, you know, in Ohio locally all the time. I, my boyfriend just did it a year ago. And every single time that happens, you see that. And then Touch Me involves a lot of that similar movement. And I mean, it, Bill T. Jones obviously was very smart with what he did there because it's about, you know, exploring oneself and mm-hmm. doing it through gestures. But I think it's really, I don't know, I want us to find new ways of doing that as the the show lives on and goes forward Absolutely. because it's, it, it looks very imitation. Yeah. It, it's, it might take a while just because it's one of those things that has become so ingrained in the DNA, similar mm-hmm. like a Fosse show or Jerome Robbins show. And there, there's something magical to that of uh, a work being so vital to a show's uh, identity, but you know, someone, someone will come along who's never seen spring awakening before and find something new with it. Uh, in the same way, you know, I'm looking, what if someone did like the most literal production of all time and it just took place in the actual woods and there's trees everywhere and concrete walls and all the good stuff. Uh, yeah. Before I forget, we have to take another break. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And we're Let's back. See. Connor has uh, went to the John, uh, the Lou, if you will, while he's away dylan let's let's gab um what so we talked about songs uh what are moments in the show that really land with you either comedic or dramatic or a specific Mm. character i really love 
the the levity, despite it being really deep, a lot of what Moritz is going through. I love the comedy that his character also brings. Uh-huh. I think specifically the scene right before Touch Me when he's explaining, you know, these this wet dream that he had the night before, or, or maybe it was a couple nights before, but then he read the essay that Melchior had written for him. Yeah. And it's funny, but it's also, because I think it's also relatable to many people, but it's also, you know, dark because it's it's really driving him, I mean, it's driving him to fail because he can't sleep because he's afraid to dream you know, for fear of this woman appearing to him and all of that. And so I, I think that those moments where it keeps, keeps it a little bit light is why, you know, it, it really helps balance it. Because otherwise it could be very dark, like you mentioned about the original, yeah, the original piece. And I think, you know, also the adult characters really help break it up in those different ways, especially if they really want to make them each memorable. Like, you know, if the instructor is different than the mother or and so forth yeah i don't know the um you mentioned the masked man earlier in the original production and that was something that really really fascinated me and they had it up until the atlantic production and it was a character played by michael serverus and he would he had songs he was sort of lurking throughout the show in the background as opposed to just appearing at the very end and i think that that character could in some ways still remain in the show if the adult man also played that role. But I don't know. I, they obviously had a good reason for removing the character for the Venla experience, but I don't know. Yeah. It's um, Venla coming back in the end of the show. It's similar to vibes of like in Titanic, how like all the passengers who died get to come back and sing one more time. There's just something very fulfilling. Lemez, yeah, it's Lemez is the you know OG of doing that, but of <laughs> it, it, you know, it's the difference between the show running for a year or two and then running for forever. It's the, it's the difference between Spring Awakening, the musical maybe lasting to January and then having a two year run. Of so, uh, we were talking about the Masked Man and and Venla, Connor. Um, are we back on? What we we were, oh, we're back on. on. We were talking. Oh, we great, were talking great, while great. you were away. Okay, um, cool. We don't need you. We don't need a man, but. Yeah, it's there's something very emotionally fulfilling about watching Venla getting a chance to come back and sing one more time, even if it's as a ghost. Uh, musically, totally. it's yeah, musically it's very fulfilling, and I mean, I like the idea that they had the Masked Man originally and you know tried to incorporate him more, but I think honestly, part of it. I mean, I, I would have to sit down with Sater and ask like whose idea it was to cut him completely. Because I think also there's the, we don't want to get rid of Cerverus. He's Michael Cerverus. Right. But, you know, I just, even in the original play, I just don't think that the masked man works. It's it's such a forced and very convenient character to bring on at the last second. and be like, you're struggling. Here, let me tell you all the things no one told you before. Which makes sense in a way, because, you know, one of the major themes of the play is all the adults will not say anything and here comes some random adult who clearly is not really part of the society probably has been exiled for reasons we'll never know but because he doesn't adhere to the rules and to everyone's sort of uh suppressed mentality he's willing to teach melchior the ways of the world and it's a little pat i like the idea that melchior there's hope for melchior simply just from the human connection of it all because you were talking dylan about the booklet, the essay that he writes for Moritz to learn about human anatomy and sexuality. 
And it connects back to what I was talking about, how Melchior is someone who really doesn't understand that, like, the world is messier than just his ideas. And even if his ideology is politically correct, he's not enforcing it in a way that is empathetic. Yes, knowledge is power. Mort should know about all these things. But he has to look at his friend and, like, understand that his friend is not mentally and emotionally in a place to have his whole world shattered by this knowledge. Um, and it's That's and I know point. that yeah, and then the adults try to pin Moritz's uh, uh, suicide on Melchior's essay, and it's obviously that's not what does it, but I don't think it helps Moritz in any way to learn about all this because when he talks to Melchior about it, and they go through touch me like Mel- Moritz leaves the stage, and we don't really ever see him in a on solid ground ever again. He's always kind of rocking back and forth from that moment on, um, and then mm. there were none, which is. First of all, talk about a goddamn bop. I fucking love that song. So good. It hits. I remember like always loving it on the cast album, but it wasn't until there was like this live recording that they did at some event Mm -hmm. and it's the song straight through and John Gallagher Jr.'s vocals, the rawness, the emotion. I was like, oh no, this, in addition to having Melchior's mother in it, it's iconic as hell, Mm -hmm. but the song itself stands alone as this this uh cathartic emotional rock mid-tempo song yeah no it's great i I always felt that the original cast recording well done as it is really should have been a live recording a la six Mm. Uh, there's an energy that you're missing from the cast recording there's a pristineness to the vocal performances which i enjoy because you know leah michelle doesn't do rough vocals but i want I wanted some of that energy from the stage and it felt a, it's a little pop albumy for me. Uh, it's also for... an in, in, incomplete album because they recorded it between Atlantic and Broadway, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there's lyrical differences. Purple Summer, um, Touch Me has different lyrics at the beginning. The arrangement or the song order is different. Don't Do Sadness comes before Guilty Ones on the album. But in reality, it's the other way around. And so there's it's just not I don't know what was going on there. Yeah, it was just not fully. Maybe they just wanted to record it and get it out there before, as soon yeah. as they could. That then that's happened before, where the, the album gets recorded early in the hopes of promoting it once the show comes out, and it mm-hmm. it, it did help. SpongeBob, yeah, yeah, like SpongeBob, uh, like Avita, honestly. Uh, but I wish that they recorded it live. Ah, well, I'm gonna just quick like, uh, lightning round for both of you in terms of these songs. Mama who bore me. Immediate thought when you think of it. Oh, it's legendary. I feel like it's one of the songs that people who don't necessarily know the show, they know the song Mama Who Bore Me. Mm-hmm. Now, Mama Who Bore Me reprise. Slay. Mm-hmm. It's the only moment in the show that the girls get to slay, like absolutely rip, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't get to do it at all at any other point. No. Every- That's so true. I don't. I don't think anyone, any girl in the show sings above a C after Mama Who Bore Me Reprise. I think it's, it remains relatively low after that. Wow. Yeah. yeah and none mid-range. of the girls get to even speak and totally fucked. Like, they don't get to have their little, you know, yeah. mantra or whatever they get. So yeah, it's weird. The girls are very underwritten, like, especially Taya and mm-hmm. Anna. And they Anna. really don't get a whole lot other than talking about what their uncles or whatever teach them or their life philosophies about I mean, hitting children. I mean, to be children. fair... Well, actually, no, I guess, so, like, of it's sort of an inverse, because the boys, uh, God, it's it's Georg, Ernst, Hanschen, 
and then who's the fourth Otto. one? Otto. Otto. Otto is the mo- is the underwritten of the four. Yeah. Um, Georg doesn't really have a ton, but he does have like two very big moments, and like we remember, like oh, Georg, he's on the piano, and he gets the big touch me solo, and then Ernst and Hanschen, obviously, like they get their scene, which is incredible, and then it's sort of the inverse so with good. the girls where. Um, Ilsa and Marta both have moments, but Marta, honestly, after Marta's song, we don't hear much from her ever again. Uh, yeah. and Taya and Anna really don't get anything, which is a shame because you know, we there is a history of casting really strong actresses in those roles, and I'm like, I'm glad we have you to bring these characters to life, but you deserve more, yeah, you for sure. Song. Yeah, for sure. The first those you I do like the scene where the girls are talking though, and they're like, "Are you going? Are you wearing a Greta Brandenburg's wedding?" And they're like <laughs> oh, talking yeah. about like it's there's such a wholesomeness to the way the girls talk, and maybe that's a little on the nose for how the boys and the girls talk, but I do appreciate those scenes. I, I especially appreciate seeing Venla in the scenes with the other girls because otherwise, it's really just her and her mother or her and Melchior. So yes. it's good to see Venla with her peers and how she acts there, and it it gives you an insight into sort of venla's mentality throughout her life right like mm-hmm. she does what she's told she doesn't ask she anytime she asks questions you know it's it takes a lot of courage for her to do so so she's the she's not going to the wedding because mama thought it was improper the first those you've known Jay all Brock. that's known oh it's an all amazing all amazing known. i want song in many ways it is an i want song it is it's very it's, mm-hmm. it's very disney brigadoon uh, he's not sitting on a tree stump. He's sitting in a chair, probably right. made from a tree, and telling the audience, "You watch me. We watch. Yeah. It. We meet our anti-hero. We really do. Bitch of living. Favorite. Oh, part it's of epic. Favorite part of it. God, is this it? This can't be it. Towards mm-hmm. the end, Ooh, chills it- every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so good. I always was titillated by their showering in gym class, though. Yeah, looks so and nasty. Bobby, Bobby Mailer. <laughs> It's looks so nasty in those khakis. <laughs> in the play, Hanshin is queer. In the musical, it feels a bit more like he's just sort of sexual. Does that make totally. sense? Absolutely. Maybe, maybe that's just the way that um, the original actor played him, but it felt less like he was gay and more that he was just overly sexual. But maybe that's just okay. how I am viewing it. No, mm-hmm. I completely agree. Because he, yeah. he wants power more than anything else. Yeah. And... You know, it's that idea that their children will ultimately become the Hitler youth. And he's sort of this this pre-Hitler youth. You know, he's going to grow up to raise a kid like that. You know, he's power hungry, you know. And, 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 that's, and, he, and he takes yeah. advantage of Ernst, who is just this sweet, sort mm-hmm. of almost invisible person up until that point. Well, it's a similar situation to Venla and, and uh, Melchior, because Ernst does want what's going on in the scene but Ernst doesn't have all the information and if he had all the information knowing the prop we all like we as an audience are watching it knowing that Hanschen's gonna you know drop Ernst the moment that Ernst goes you know face down butt up and like it's I'm sorry this is the truth uh it's the truth it's the truth Ernst uh, is a sub bottom absolutely and it's not just because that's what Gideon Glick decided to make the character that's just how the character is written um he wants to be a pastor for Christ's sake, but if I think if Ernst knew that what he when once he gives it up to Hanshin that it's not going to be like that ever again, he might not do it, um, mm-hmm. or maybe he would, but it has to be his choice, right? And so Hanshin does take advantage of advantage of Ernst in that respect, as someone who also like not that situation, but like 
the number of times I've made decisions, not having the information, thinking I had the information and then finding out after I've made the decision. Oh, you did not tell me chapters five through 10. Uh, mm. Like you end up it's with relatable. Data. It's very relatable. I think we all can, you know, understand that. Who is Hanshin pleasuring himself to? Do we know? It's a well, portrait a, that... of Desdemona, who's, you know, from the play Othello and she's dead or is it hamlet it's one of the two it's 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 othello othello and that's yeah. what i thought it was because he's asking her like have you prayed tonight and i was like does he have a portrait of an actress who played desdemona like i it's a very yeah i don't know You know when when you could because spring awakening we haven't mentioned this yet but when when it was staged in its original iteration on broadway there was on stage seating in which the cast and the sort of ensemble sat amongst you and came in and out and switched between seats. And it, it was immersive in, a, in that sense that you could be on stage and, and, um, if, if you purchase those tickets. And I remember sitting on stage and trying so hard to see the photo that Andy Miantis was holding during uh, my junk. And it, was, it seemed like a very black and white, like blurred out, but obviously a woman. Like a, yeah. there, were, there were breasts. Yes, it's yes. He is he is pleasuring himself to a woman for sure, because he t- he says Desdemona, but I can't imagine that he's like, ah, yes, I have the headshot of the woman who played Desdemona in the local production of Hamlet. I don't. <laughs> it's just all very specific. I also I don't. Speaking of like the power thing, I don't know. Like the way he talks about her, it's very <laughs> Dom sub and and talking it about is. her talking about her murder. It's very strange. Yeah, because she's also, dead. You know. Yeah. It's like he's pleasuring himself to the memory of her. I don't know. I also remember in the original production, there was a blackboard at the back of the stage that listed all the numbers of the show in chalk, like, but in order. Oh. Yeah. Maybe I'm making that up. You're I right. Think... No, you're right. You are right. I'm right. Hear that? You're right, I was Matt. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, I'm always right, but am I like, I sometimes I'm just not convinced, but I am always right. Uh, Something I loved about the set too was that they recreated what happened at the Atlantic, which is, you know, the basement of a church, I believe, uh-huh. or sort of like a downstairs of a church. And they kind of kept that vibe. You know, the show has a lot of references to these sort of, you know, institutions, whether it be government or church or, you know, school. And that environment sort of remained with the production that made it to Broadway and then toured and whatnot. It's sort of, you know, it looks very holy, I think, in many ways that, 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 intimate vibe that they went for if there was one change we would make to the show other than giving venla a don't forget me ivy lynn moment before she dies of her abortion what is there anything else we can think of where we like i would want to maybe get a second pass at this moment that's that's tough because although i do want more for the girls i don't necessarily know if they need another number mm-hmm. i don't know if any of the other supporting characters need another number in general so i wonder if i would much as i love hanshin and Georg's lines in my junk i wonder if i would just make it the girls or focus on the girls okay a bit more i don't know that might be like it could have been you, a scene yeah i don't know if that's like win some and then you lose some but if I were to give them more to do, I would expand my junk into a full-on epic belt fest for the bitches. Yes. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. Dylan, what do you think? I mean, I think it's pretty... It's interesting because I was, in preparing for this, reading about the London revival that happened mm-hmm. in 2021 mm-hmm. and 2022. And Dylan, it was at the Almeida. 
Oh, cool. And because Dylan asked me earlier, he was like, was it at the Alameda? And I'm like, yeah. And I read that they, they replaced the guilty ones with the song that was originally written for the show. There once was a pirate, which we all may have heard. Cause I think Duncan, Sheik did a recorded it's a version on Spotify. of it. I just listened Spotify? to it today. Yeah. Did you, I didn't, I don't know much about this revival, but I think that's such a fascinating choice to swap yeah. in a cut song. And there was another song that originally was in the, in where the bitch of living is um a comet on its way a comet on its way mm. they, they really love a metaphor in spring awakening i think that's <laughs> even Sater. Sater's like why why be literal when we can talk in metaphors metaphors and allegories uh you know that gavin creel had done early workshops of the show with me yeah Ooh, I, I love that connection yeah it's a great connection i mean a lot of people this show was in development for many years you mentioned sort of you know from what i understand Sater found the script in the late 90s and he was sort of like a poet playwright ish kind of moving about and he met duncan she because they both were in a buddhist community and, and they would chant together yeah and he said to Sheik like we should work on this together and i guess it wasn't until they got mayor on as director that they really kind of went hard with it because Sheik was like well i don't really write musical songs i write rock mm-hmm. songs and when they brought Mayor on board, Mayor was like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, this is this show needs rock music. And I think that's also what makes what will keep the show evergreen in a lot of ways is you have 19th century Germany mixed with early to mid 2000s indie pop rock music. And mm-hmm. it keeps the whole thing uh, moving because this, this, the music doesn't sound super dated in a way that a lot of pop music of that era does, you know? Sure. 100%. Um, that is such a good point. Yeah. That is such a good point. I think I, though, I like in looking at the track list and thinking about the show, I think it's really concise and I, it, there's like not much fat there. I wouldn't change much. No. Uh, and if you watch the boot of the original production, it clocks in a little under two hours without the intermission, which okay. is a pretty tight musical. I mean, a chorus line is a little over two hours and intermissionless. And, you know, that's considered a pretty compact musical as well. It's not so much about like what I would add or what I would cut. I don't know. I think it's more just about like, or is there anything that I feel when the show's over that I might want a bit more of? And I think because the impact still is pretty strong at the end, the ends justify the means. But mm. but I don't yeah. know. I think if anything, I've always felt very confused about the Melchior character because you have someone like Jonathan Groff playing the role who is is so sweet and demure in many ways. And I mean, obviously I didn't see him playing it, but I had trouble connecting him as this rebel. And that's whatever, how everyone describes Melchior throughout, but I don't necessarily think we see him do anything rebellious other than explain the facts of life to Moritz and then obviously have sex with, oh, well then again, he, there is the beating scene, which is like a tough, we haven't even touched upon that, yeah. which is a tough moment. But we haven't talked about either of Melchior's solos in this, The Mirror Blue Night and Left Behind, which are honestly two of my favorite songs on the show as well, just lyrically. What do you want to talk about? Go for it. I don't know. I think that Mirror Blue Night is interesting that it's like this late first act sort of soliloquy for for Melchior to like reflect on how he's feeling. Because it's after the beating scene and it's before the hayloft scene. And he doesn't, it's that, you know, you're saying earlier, Matt, it's like, we sing because we can't speak anymore, but he's alone with his thoughts, singing this, you know, ballad, but it's a very confusing lyric. I think it's one of the first 
ones that was actually written for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, beautifully written. But I don't think it necessarily clues us in as an audience how he's really feeling because the lyrics are so abstract. Well, he has the line, um, it's cold in these bones, I'm a man and a child. And that's True. the only, well, that, the, to be fair, that's the only, the fact that that's the only lyric I can think of, I think also comes to your point where that line is, I think, the crux of the song. I can't explain the rest of the song, though. Um, but I also don't think we get that struggle from him in the writing of, you know, so many, so like what so many of these characters, they're going through puberty, and though, and there's a reason why Frank Vatikant, 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 yes, why yes. Frank Vatikant and Seder start the the show with Venla wearing a dress that she once wore as a child. You know, I still feel like a kid. Why does it matter that my body is developing? What does that even mean anyway? And it's mm-hmm. that you know you have these these urges, these hormones, and these thoughts that really aren't saying much about you they're just sort of part of the the transitional period you know as as it's sort of it's it's like a whole new rebooting of the system and you know while that happens there are some chromosomes that are getting rearranged and thus you might have some weird thoughts like uh who is it georg or otto otto who like fantasizes uh has a wet dream about his mother or something like yeah, that it's otto. Mm-hmm. oh yeah. yeah um just one of those things where it's not it's not Otto's fault. That's just how hormones work. You, you're going to fantasize about people that, you know, you right. don't actually desire. It's just what's going to happen. Um, and mm-hmm. I think I don't, we don't necessarily see that struggle with Melchior because he's so quote unquote all knowing his rebelliousness. Yeah. It's more just his knowledge. Uh, Cause he's at, for the act one, he's sort of being rebellious within the system because he's such a good student and everyone uh, likes him so much he's kind of like this um, double agent. They don't realize the chaos that he's causing within the system because he's succeeding so well in the system. And then it's an act two and everything goes to shit that, you know, uh, and they find the pamphlet and everything and he yeah, does the and, reformatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when Moritz kills himself and yeah, was, the pamphlet, yeah, the, the pamphlet does double damage because the school uses it as means to blame him for Moritz's death. And then when Venla is revealed to be pregnant, uh, Melchior's parents find the pamphlet and go so it's not just he was exploring he knew exactly what he was doing and what the consequences were we have to send mm-hmm. it we can't think of him as a child anymore he knew um so they okay maybe maybe they were right <laughs> I'm all of a sudden right. like wait they kind of you know, were right yeah you know as we're talking about like it's all the boys in the show that get to have pleasure and the only you know perhaps it's saying something about the writing or the time, et cetera, et cetera, that the, the boys know how to masturbate. They are openly talking about these wet, sticky dreams. They know about, you know, how to jerk off in a circle or whatever, you know? Yeah. But the girls, as far as they go with female pleasure, other than Benlo, which is another thing, all they do is kind of just talk about the crushes they have. And I almost wish the girls had a little- Or the trauma little, they've suffered. Or the trauma they've suffered. And then one of them dies, of course. And then one of them is- ostracized from her community and i wish there maybe was a moment in the show that allowed the girls to be to speak on their urges a little bit more and it doesn't have to be to each other it could be like yeah you know i think that's absolutely fair um there's but is that touch me i don't know it's unclear because no none of the girls are speaking during touch me and they're all doing the choreography where they're touching themselves so it's it's hard to say 
there are times when the singing I feel like isn't literal, you know, it's, it's just communal energy that, you know, is uh, resembling, sorry, fuck is representing what someone else is feeling. Um, I had a talk with a female friend of mine about this, like a few years ago where, and this is just her experience. So by all, by no means does blank speak for all women, but we were talking about kind of, you know, masturbation and she was like, it's a little more, effort for women because it's so inward um and it's so sensitive and so complicated it like whereas with men like it's right there and it might take you a minute as a teenager to figure it out but you figure it out pretty quickly it's a it takes especially with no information at your fingertips (laughs) um with it's it's for like 19th century girls with no knowledge of what sexuality is any feelings that they do have of horniness they probably don't necessarily know how to express it just yet or how to handle themselves in any way, especially with the puritanical views of their society. Right. It's all just confusion. Um, but I would like, I, I'm with you on this one, Connor. I feel like with my junk, I would love it if that could sort of bleed into from crushes into like, you know, I'm but I'm feeling something else now. Like, Yeah, even if they just want to talk about kissing the boys or something. I don't know. Caressing them, something about their bodies. Yeah, because it's all just... It's very piney and that's lovely. We've all been there, but like, I don't know if you, if you were alone with Melky or Remy Zakin, who does she play? Anna? No, Taya. Taya. Taya, if you were alone with that radical Melky or Gabor, what would you do with him? Would you kiss him? Would you stroke his hair? Would you stroke his back? There's something. You're giving me a tingle. Oh my God. Um, That's what I do (laughs) from afar only though, Connor, through a computer screen, never in person. When we meet in person, you're going to be like, oh, I'm straight now. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, as we're talking about all these different iconic actors who have been in the roles, do either of you have like a favorite performance from Spring Awakening that you saw or maybe didn't see that you're like, oh my God, I love even like them on the cast album or in the bootleg or whatever? Well, I did see the original and then I saw the revival. I remember really, so actually fun fact, the other thing about the original company of Spring Awakening is for the majority of that first year, it was difficult to see the entire original company at the same time Uh, because they were young, because, you know, eight shows a week is hard. And also because, you know, once the show finally got some success, opportunities were coming their way. A lot of people calling out left and right. So when I saw it pretty early in the run, uh, Lauren Pritchard was out and Remy Zakin was out. And in their oh. place were, respectively, Krista Rodriguez and Jen Damiano. Oh, my um, goodness. Slay, slay like, though. And then when I saw the revival, I saw Krista play Ilsa again. So it was really cool to see Krista play that role like nine years apart uh, very differently. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed what she did in the revival. Uh, I also remember being really moved by Lily Cooper in the original, especially in Left Behind. And this is one of those things where it's like you do the setup in Act One, so all it takes is one moment on stage to pay out, which is when you find out in Act One, like that Marta's the only one who finds March Stiefel cute and attractive, and like it's just a little too shy to say anything about him. And that then, sad, soulful, sleepyhead Moritz Stiefel. Yeah, how can you even compare them? But <laughs> when he dies, and they're all sort of like paying their respects, there's there's a little, little bit of a longer moment for Marta because she's the only one who had a very specific feeling towards Moritz that will never mm-hmm. get any kind of uh, resolution. And it's and something about the way she, I remember, I think she like dropped the flower. Something way she did it, just like really 
spoke to me. Wow. Ellen? I love that. Um, my greatest experience with Spring Awakening was with the first national tour and Christy Altamar played Venfa in the tour. And to me, she was graceful and naive and perfect. Mm-hmm. And I still have deliveries, like line deliveries of what, how she interpreted the role in my head to this day. And I'll never forget the scene where she realizes that she's pregnant and it's because of what she did with Melchior. Mm-hmm. It's the, it, that, that to me, like still gives me chills to this day. Um, and the moment where Venma says, like when she's asking Melchior to beat her in the first act and he's like, why? And she's like, I've never felt anything. Like, it's such a great line that, you know, she's so confused and wrapped up in herself of wanting to figure things out. But Christy to me was an early queen an early, an early big influence for me. Connor. She bought, she bodied that. I know I was gonna say Christy. So let me think of like a more fun answer really quick. Um, well, the woman who played the adult women on the tour, Angela Reed? Bassett. <laughs> An- Angela Bassett um, was so amazing as the adult women, like, bodied that. Yeah. Bodied. But also, fun fact, Dylan and I went to Chicago to see the first national tour um, because a majority of the cast was leaving to, you mm-hmm. know, they had done it for a year or whatever. So like Blake Bashoff was leaving, um, Ben Moss was leaving, et cetera. So, um, oh, I think Kyle Riabko was leaving and it was, um, the guy from Degrassi coming in to do it, or maybe yep. he had already left and he was new, but anyway, the Moritz replacement was Taylor Trench, who is one of my favorite theater actors, mm-hmm. living theater actors, you know, and he was so naturally tapped into Moritz at his like very first performance. And I will honestly never forget seeing him. Oh, and Ben Fankhauser was Ernst, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ben of Newsies. So yeah. it was like, really, I, I really loved Taylor too. And of course, Ben Moss voice of an angel as Ernst, Steffi D giving iconic Canadian rasp as Ilsa. So I guess I'd throw those out there too. Yeah. I had a friend who joined the company, um, I guess in the second year of the national tour. And I didn't, we didn't get to see the tour because we were still in school and she was a swing, swinger ensemble, something like that. Um, so like we, as a college kid, you don't like fly out to Philadelphia because your friend's going to be Venma for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember when the tour closed, a bunch of the Spring Awakening girls did a concert at Lori Beachman. Yeah. I and that. yeah, I, I think Julie Benko was there. Christina Alabado. Yeah. Oh my God. Kiyopi. I th- yeah, Chris wow. was definitely there. Uh, I think Kamiko Glenn also did it. Yeah, she probably would have been. Claire Sparks might have been there. Yeah, well, and because I, I know it was various girls from the tour at different points. So I maybe mm-hmm. even Christy was there as well. And I remember even when. So I also remember when Christy became Sophie and Mamma Mia. I didn't mm-hmm. know who she was, but she, her her likeness was on the side of the Broadhurst. And my friend uh, pointed to her and she's like, oh, my God, it's Christy. I'm like, who, who is she? She's like, she was Venla before I, I joined the tour. So I've always so like when Christy got um, Carrie and then when she got Anastasia, I just knew her as, oh, yeah, that Venla from the tour uh, uh-huh. that, you know, so and so. And that's also how I knew about Taylor was because Taylor, my friend, became very close on that tour. And I think Taylor actually came to see the production of Carousel that I directed and at Emerson because uh, Kayla came back after she finished the tour and her boyfriend at the time was my Billy Bigelow. So Taylor like came to see the whole thing. What was Kayla's um, last name again? Foster. Yeah. I remember that she was a cast member. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she actually, I don't think she ever did go on for Venla. I think she got a put in and then never went on, but she did all oh, the other bummer. Yeah. Bummer. 
we used to joke we're like it's a shame that you know america never got to see your boobs but then she did <laughs> i think she was on the deuce where she played like a hustling uh sex worker and we're like well now america has seen your boobs you did it on <laughs> um, wow. I, I think christy might have done the full tour i'm trying to remember if there was ever a Venla replacement i, I don't know tour. maybe there was i don't know i don't know, I, don't know. Um, whole cast, I mean i mean think of like lily cooper tony nominee Gideon Glick, Tony nominee. Matt Doyle, Tony winner. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got Groff in there mul- nomina- nom- nominated a few times. Mm-hmm. Like, John Gallagher won. Caitlin Kinnanen was in the replacement cast. Of, Alexandra uh, Sosha replacement cast. Like, Sosha. Yeah, Julie, Sosha. I mean, Julie Benko, like, from the yeah. tour. And then Leah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's really amazing. And Kamiko, of course, has had a yeah. robust theater and television career. And Andy, like, they, everyone has yeah. really done exciting things. It's just, it's so cool it is so cool yeah it's also really sweet how many of them have gone on to do shows with michael mayer again i find that fun mm-hmm. michael mayer is michael mayer is really good about uh coming back to people that he enjoys um okay yeah a lot of them did american idiot right away like brian charles johnson half of them have done uh, little shop of ours yeah now yeah now he's got them all through a little shop yeah and now and we have julie and leah with funny girl it's all it's all all connected okay um there's so much honestly we could keep talking about the show forever we're having so much fun man i'm having a blast with you guys but i did promise connor that we would end a while ago and we've gone way too far so <laughs> we i'm just gonna have to bring you guys back and we're gonna have to clear a whole evening Listen, i know you, the invite is there we'll no, have to I have wanna, you on I, drama as well i want to give down. the juice i want to give you all the juice that you're squeezing out of this um let's let's call it an orange um, what else? What else are you dying to talk about? God, I don't know. Uh, Jonathan Groff's ass. Uh, uh, okay. Well, that's a whole podcast. That so is I a whole. I think that'll be. I think, ladies, I think we just started a podcast right here, right now. In addition <laughs> to drama and Broadway breakdown, we are going to start a podcast, and I'm going to pitch it to BPN, and it's just called Jonathan Groff's ass, and we talk about everything, but ha ha ha, Jonathan Groff's ass until the last ten minutes, and then it's just. New adjectives we can think of. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Just keep it fresh. Yeah. And love. all the places you can see it. Spring yeah, Awakening, I mean, Bootleg, Looking, all the episodes and movie version of Looking, Taking yeah. Woodstock, Mindhunter. Oh, yeah. Mindhunter. That boy knows that he's got a good peach and he's willing to show it off. Mm-hmm. Um, Mindhunter should have gotten the third season. And then, you know, he um, was just in Merrily. And although he is clothed the entire time, Connor did have a viral tweet about his ass that it was shown to Jonathan himself. You know what? I think I need to finally post it on Instagram. So when this episode drops, I will do it finally. Please do, because I do not have Twitter, but I do have Instagram. And right. I, I'm, I know, I'm, I'm an old man. I like visuals. I need, I need bright, colorful photos. Yeah. That's fair. Do either of you have visions in your head of how you would like to do Spring Awakening? Do, you, do either of you fancy yourself directors? You know, it's funny. I think at one point I would have wanted to have directed it, but my I mentioned earlier that my boyfriend did it last year in Columbus, Ohio. I'm sorry, Dylan, you, you, have, you have a boyfriend? You have a boyfriend? Oh, yes. you, want, you want to say it one more time? Have I said it a lot? Yeah. <laughs> you said it like three times. I'm, I notoriously love to drag people on this podcast in relationships because I'm going to die alone. Uh, and it's the only comfort I get. Connor, do you have a boyfriend? I, well, I don't want to mention it now because I don't want to be dragged. Well, no. fine. You don't. But no. No. Okay, you you get to stay, Dylan. <laughs> I used to get a lot of heat for mentioning him on the podcast. No, no, I love that you found love in a hopeless place. This world is terrible. So Thank your you. boyfriend did it. He well, was Hanshin. Speaks... And he was Hanshin? Um, 
Yes. And that was fun. And I remember when I watched that production, there was a lot of things I think I would have done maybe differently, just having seen it with fresh eyes and seeing him in the show. And I, I think that there's a way to, you know, cause people love to modernize the show and maybe change up the ending or different things like that. And I, and I do have visions of how I think I would connect it to modern society that, um, that I think is possible with the production. I love that. I just realized why I'm actually going to die alone, though, when you were telling that story. You're like, oh, I was watching my boyfriend play Hanshin. I was like, if I was seeing a production of Spring Awakening and my boyfriend was playing Hanshin, I would turn to the person next to me during my junk and go, that's not how he usually jerks off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was fun. You know, I had I sat with my parents while they watched him jerk off. You know, it was very interesting. Oh, God. And again, I I would tell my parents, don't worry. That's not how he does it in real life. And (laughs) just like I... Must I troll the people I love in this world? Apparently, that's all I can do. Um, oh, we all um, I don't. I don't know if this is an original thought, but I feel like there's somewhere in my brain the concept of having Spring Awakening being done in like an insane asylum, and then it it ends, and it, they're all locked up in the Looney Bin vibes. Um, it's not that it's an unoriginal thought. I don't know if anyone's thought of that for Spring Awakening. Also, why is my hair so weird? Uh, it's people. So there was an NYU production of hair that did that. Oh. Um, I want to do a production of Cats that's set in an insane asylum. That makes that sense. Work. And McCavity is the nurse ratchet who comes in to give everyone their <laughs> pills and shots. And then at the end, Grizabella to just lean into the theory everyone has about this show that like Grizabella is not going anywhere. She just jumps off into the ocean. All the inmates set up a chair and a noose made out of their bed sheet. And they're sending Grizabella off to the heavy side layer, and they just hang her. And then oh, all through the macabre. And then, so macabre. And then the naming of the cats is them just singing to the audience while Grizabella just swings there. Oh, my God. That's like a little too dark for me after talking about this play that's so dark. But then when the, when so, the, dark, when, so dark, when Morris. the curtain call happens, <laughs> she just pops her head right back up. And she and she's. Oh, that's to, cute, though. She gets herself out of the noose and she and she does a nice big bow. I, yeah. I very, it's very, very, you know, communal at the end. It is very communal. We're we're all cats in some way. Um, what would you we'll do with your production of Spring Awakening? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I feel like what I might do. It's such a visual thing. I hate being the kind of. I don't. I never considered myself a director. Really, I directed in college and it was sort of like food poisoning. The production turned out well, but it was such an awful experience getting the show up. That I was like, never again. <laughs> and I'm actually doing some musical staging for the New York City Gay Men's Chorus that I'm a part of. We oh. have a concert uh, next week. If either of you are in town for it, I can get you a ticket because I'm you know, on the production team for this. But hey. yeah, uh, we, I did some staging for them for a few of the solo numbers and they went over quite well. And I was like, huh, maybe I could do this again. I don't know. It's been long enough. Love uh, it. Look at you go. Years. Thank you. So if I did Spring Awakening, and I don't want to think like a director who only thinks in visuals, but I feel like I would start it probably very communal with the audience. Like everyone's sort of sitting in, you know, different spots. It wouldn't necessarily be all proscenium, maybe in the round. And it would be very all the lights on, like all the work lights on, all that stuff. And then sort of as the show continued, it would get a little more theatrically lit and darker. Until we get to act two where all the shit hits the fan. Actually, no. Until at the end of act one with the sex scene where all the lights would go out and then they come back up and it's like fully theatrical after that. 
that's um, cool. Yeah, yeah like just that. sort of like the world kind of collapsing in on you, you know? I I steal that from Carousel, which everyone's heard me talk about this scene transition, so fuck off. I'm going to say it one more time. You can watch the video on YouTube, but it doesn't do it justice. In Carousel in the 94, and the best thing that's ever happened to Broadway ever, and yes, I am backing that up with science. <laughs> they do it on a hill. They do that whole scene on a hill rather than on a bench. And you've been to the Beaumont at Lincoln Center, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And so you know, like, it's got that thrust, and then it's got that deep stage. Yes. And so what they did at the end of the scene with the blossoms and all that shit... Sally Murphy, remember her name. She's popping up in a second. And Michael <laughs> Hayden, they do their kiss and they get into like this bear hug. It's not cute. It's like it's they're just holding on to each other for dear life. And then that hill, that green turtle shell moved to the back of the Beaumont stage as all the lights started to go down, except for one spotlight on them as they kept holding on to each other. And the spotlight got tighter and tighter and tighter as the hill went further back and further back. So they just looked like they were drowning in darkness until the final note. And then the light went out. I'm like, that is a beautiful image. And it's a great wow. metaphor for their relationship. Because even though it's toxic, they hold on to each other because let go and there's nothing but darkness. Now, that's beautiful in theory. I know a few mm. people in this world who have similar mentalities about the relationship. And I can just tell you, those of us who know them, those those you've known, we're all sitting there <laughs> being like, honey, get off the hill. Get out right. of the theater. There are other theaters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who directed that? Nicholas Heitner. Oh great! Oh wow! Okay, I believe Sir Nicholas Heitner. Yes, who's now the artistic? Right. Yeah, who's now the uh, artistic director of the Bridge Theater, doing Guys and Dolls. Which was that playing when you two were in London? No, it no. didn't. Originally, we were supposed to be there now, and it was playing or starts this week, but it was not playing. I didn't realize that you two were so homophobic to yourselves. Just deny <laughs> yourself. We changed because we ultimately did get tickets to Streetcar at the mm-hmm. Hall, Moscow. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Oh, I want I want to say this as well. This is how you know I've listened to your pod. It is Mescal. Paul Mescal. It is Mescal. Mescal. It is Mescal. Okay. Mescal. I thought so. I thought so. Be- yes. Because, yes, you had a moment with each other like, Mescal, Mescal. And I was sitting there being like, I'm going to be able to tell them in 90 minutes. <laughs> Thank um, you. You're like, Thank you for telling me this five weeks after we recorded right. that. <laughs> um, yeah. I love it when I record episodes two months ago and then I release it two months later people dm me they're like you said this and and this is what you're asking i'm like thank you i found that out in the last two months since i recorded when, <laughs> when will this come out sorry i'm getting all business uh, soon it's coming out this is coming out next week so this we're recording this oh, on cool. the 8th this is coming out on the 16th do you want to hear something crazy i saw spring awakening on march 8th in 2009 me too i was there so this is the 14th anniversary of you seeing spring awakening yes mm-hmm. yes 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 and i I feel like we were on stage, Dylan. Were we not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't do on stage. I don't love being on stage because then I feel like I have to perform a little bit, even though no one's watching me. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, we, sure. I thought the same. And then a friend of ours was in the audience while we were on stage. And he was like, you weren't rocking out during bitch. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> see, that's the kind of stuff that, that makes me nervous. I'm like, people are going to look at me, even, even if only for a second. That's I saw view from the bridge on stage, and and luckily the way that whole thing was designed, no one really looks at you. But still, I, every now and then I was like, half the Lyceum Theater can see me. I must I must stand with posture. Yeah, with with Russell Tovey. With Russell, yes, so with Russell Tovey. The talk about speaking of Jonathan Groff, that's that is a a couple of a couple of sex scenes, sex scenes between those two that uh sprung my awakening. Now, okay. Oh, like- <laughs> Gents, this has been an absolute pleasure. We do have to wrap this up because Connor, you've been lovely, but I'm 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 gonna release you now because you have work to do. It's tragic. It's almost as tragic as 
aspects of Spring Awakening, but ultimately it was so fun. I learned a lot and I got to geek out about a musical that honestly, not to make it full circle, was a ring of keys for me in, in terms of getting into the business. I, I remember seeing the show and being like, oh my God, they're so close to me in age. Mm-hmm. They're participating in the arts in a huge way. Let me go watch Jonathan Groff's Broadway.com backstage tour again and again and again and again and again and yeah. learn everything. You know, it, it really was this amazing to be going through puberty and experiencing my own questions about life and what I'm interested in and my sexuality while watching it happen on stage in a musical was such a strange and perfect, fateful timing that I almost felt like, how am I getting this so well as a kid, you know, a a teen, but also theater goers everywhere are also enjoying this and feeling it like that's, that's powerful art to me. So that's why part of why I love Spring Awakening. Yeah. That's the power of musical theater. It's it it touches on something that's not necessarily in your head. It's in your heart. It's chemical. Mm. Music is something we can all relate to. Yeah. Period. Period. Says Dylan. Any final parting words on Spring Awakening? Oh, it's it's definitely in my top three forever and always. I will always buy a ticket to see it whenever it's performed. And thank you so much for having us. You know, we talk about it a lot on our show, but never in this depth. We're usually just trying to get like memories from the cast and whatnot. So this was. This was lovely. Matt, you're so good at what you do. Dylan. And you love it. You love it. You can tell that you love it. And that's what mm-hmm. I love about your podcast. You love what you're talking about. Thank you very much. I got to say, this has probably been the most polite I've been about a show in a while, even shows that I love. But, you know, like, you know, like when we get into sort of like the nitty gritty stuff and we talk about, you know, some of the backstage stuff. I have friends on this pod who I love and I'm I'm going to have them back on again. But we get bitchy and we make like snarky comments but we do it usually lovingly like um adam ellsbury and i in the rent episode with our daffy rubin vega impressions but like <laughs> it's it, coming it's coming from two gays who have devoured that cast album so we just know every minutia of her performance get it right but um it's like how, how i would have done my alice ripley impression had we done a next normal episode together you know well no you you said it here we go <laughs> you're on you're on the air dylan mcdowell will you come back on to do next to normal oh my goodness i would be honored connor can i come back for something different alone i was i i was actually gonna say first of all i was gonna i was gonna make a joke and be like connor you want to leave now but um i couldn't think of that fast enough <laughs> This has been amazing. I would gladly take you both at the same time or separately. And I don't mean that sexually, but don't I? Uh, uh, but yes, we'll, if we'll, I work had a the, we'll work out we'll work out the logistics. But yes, you both are gonna come back on for this series. Uh and awesome. I have Dylan on record as saying that I'm gonna be on drama. I may not be as famous as Matt Doyle, but I am more famous now than Matt Shingledecker. So there we go. I'm in between the two Spring Awakening Mats. And you got to own end on a snarky note, which I am gagged by i'm obsessed with that thank you before we close out before we close out oh shit i gotta we gotta do this we have a game we have a game right it's it's the same game different names i don't know if either of you made it to the end of either episode yeah okay (laughs) so so you know so you know but for the listeners out there we have six degrees of sally murphy and who lives who dies janine tesori they are the same game which is to say that they are six degrees of both women we have to find six degrees from the original production of spring awakening to sally murphy and as well to janine desori janine desori is fucking easy now we can you can use the entire original broadway cast 
no replacements, and you can use the entire original production team. I can help you with Sally Murphy. Janine DeSori is actually pretty easy if you just look oh, at yeah. production team. Totally. Do, do we do we go from Janine backwards? You can go however you want, love. This is Does this it have is, to be six or can it be just one? It could just be one. I mean, if you want to like try to make it fun, you can yeah, try we'll to make it fun. Because there's a there's a okay, there's okay. a one and done right there. Which well, Michael Mayer, are, obviously. Which one? Michael Mayer and Janine yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, with, with Early Modern Millie. What about Michael Cerverus? Well, he wasn't in the original production. Oh, okay. Okay. But involved. But involved. But I mean, that's also a one and done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, okay. okay. Oh, oh, I have one. I have one. Oh, this is fun. Okay. Okay. It's pretty close though. But John Gallagher Jr. was in the original play of Kimberly Akimbo. And Kimberly Akimbo was written by David Lindsay Bear, and David Lindsay Bear is working with Janine Tesori on Kimberly Akimbo, the Broadway show now. Absolutely. And Shrek, so that also works. You also have John Gallagher Jr. in Rabbit Hole by David Lindsay Bear. DLA, mm-hmm. his Pulitzer. Yeah. Yeah, in, yes, indeedy. Um, yeah, no, that that absolutely works. Sally Murphy. Now, I'm going to get, I'm assuming you guys don't know Sally Murphy's credits like I do because I am the one Sally Murphy superstan. I saw Downstate mm-hmm. twice. Uh, Sally Murphy, let me give you some of her Broadway credits. We have okay. the 94 Carousel with Audra. We have the Lacusa Wild Party. We have the Fiddler on the Roof with Alfred Molina. Wink, wink. We have August Osage County. We have uh, the Minutes. Uh, but there's a, there's an immediate one and done. Right. Leah yeah. Michelle Leah being Michelle. in that Fiddler. Being in that Fiddler. The Fiddler that had two Jews in the entire company. Speaking of Laura Michelle Kelly. I'm, oh, yeah, she, I'm was sure there were, well. she wasn't as well. The, the, I'm sure there were more Jewish people in that production, but when it opened, the joke was like it was the least Jewish fiddler of all time. Is Alfred Molina Jewish? I don't think he is. He but, gives Jewish but, energy, but also like that production was just very pristine and like cold. There was another joke that like the set looked like it came from um, West Elm. It looked like a West Elm set, is what people oh. often said about the production <laughs> because it, it was just like very pretty to look at. That's not a slight. That was just what the talk was at the time. I'm trying to think if we could do one more. Okay, Mia Michelle was in Ragtime. Yes, with Audra. With Audra. Mm-hmm. And well, that was too easy. That was too quick. With uh, Sally Murphy. Okay, wait. So, give, I wish I could okay. like extend it a little. So let me. Okay, so let me. Okay, so how about this? I'm gonna have you guys challenge me on this one. Okay. Give me a Spring Awakening person, and then with okay with. We could also connect it back to Leah Michelle Ragtime, directed by Frank Galati, who directed Sally Murphy in Grapes of Wrath. But we have Sally Murphy in Grapes of Wrath, Carousel, Lacusa Wild Party, Alfred Molina Fiddler on the Roof, August Osage County, The Minutes. Those are those are the Sally Murphy credits. Give me somebody from Spring Awakening, and then give me a Sally Murphy credit, and I'm going to try to connect the, the dots. Okay, we're going to definitely do Wild Party for Sally Murphy. I knew I liked you. Yeah, that's because I think that has a, like a really robust cast as well. Um, it also fucks so hard, Dylan. Are you a Lacusa? I am such. A, okay, I have done Lippas. I have done. Okay. It is not fun to be in Lippas unless you are the main four. Okay, and even then, you're the you're always rooting for the underdog. So this always rooting for the underdog. And also, uh-huh. I'm sorry, Tony Collette. Come on, I know Eartha Kitt. Eartha, Mandy Patinkin, Mark Kudish, Norm Lewis. I could go on, but I won't. Uh, 
So, okay. wild card, so I wild chose party. the I chose the the credit for Sally, and Connor's going to choose the Spring Awakening cast member. It doesn't have to be original, Connor. Or does it? Doesn't have to be original. Broadway it does, cast? but if you want oh, to okay, make okay. it fun, we can do no, tour. no, no. Do original. Do original. Or it could be a. Do you hear my? Do you hear my hissing heater? I do. I thought that was just your list. <laughs> I'm going to be random as hell, and no offense to this performer. <laughs> do it, Lauren Pritchard. Oh fuck you! Oh fuck you! Um, do you want me to change? Uh, what? Do you want me to change? Well, I I don't know if she's done any other theater has she because she's mostly like an uh she mostly does like indie music yeah she now goes by a different name in fact she goes by a different name can i how about i give you um let's go with lily cooper oh this could be this is a fun one this is a fun one okay 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 lily cooper was in potus I don't know where I'm going yet, but I feel like there are options here. Uh-huh. POTUS. Also had oh, 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 motherfucker fucker. Had Julie White. Mm-hmm. Julie White was in the play Gary with Nathan Lane and Chrissy Nielsen, directed by George C. Wolf, who directed the wild party with Sally Murphy, bang bang boom. Wow. That was good. You're good at this game. Bing I, bang bong. In b- bing bang bong, sing sang song. In my defense, <laughs> Connor, I've I have done this quite a few times now, uh, and I'm usually oh, the one you're an ex- you're, ex- you're a Melchior. You're a regular Melchior, aren't you? Well, well, especially with Sally, because I do the game, and everyone's like, I think I could figure out Janine. I don't know Sally, and I'm like, this is my ploy to get people to know Sally Murphy better. Um, it's oh, God, she's the best, Julie Jordan. Anyway, uh. Dylan, Connor, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Oh, yeah, yes. Come and, come and knock on our door. We're at The Drama Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We're at The Drama Pod on TikTok. And you can also find us. Connor and I respond to all DMs, even the naughty ones. I'm at Dylan McDowell and Connor is at Connor McDowell. Especially and the naughty ones. And it's, it's McDowell is spelled M-A-C-D-O-W-E-L-L. Guys, this has been amazing. I've really had the best time. And I also say if you want to reach out to them, you can email them on the drama website. They do answer to those emails. I can, can. confirm. Um, <laughs> yes. if, if you're if you're a shark, sharks come back and reply to you. Guys, if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram only at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. I have to make this statement again, unfortunately. Uh, please don't go to Facebook because A, I don't use it, but also it's only there for my family. So I've just, it's not that like I find it a violation, like, you know, telling a Spring Awakening cast member, you know, where they went on vacation, but I just don't, I just don't respond. So just don't do it. Instagram, <laughs> I will respond to DMs there. I uh, post theater reviews. I actually will be writing my dance and review uh, around the time that this episode comes out and Ooh. that's Cinderella after that. For the first time this entire series, I know what the next episode's going to be. I've done this whole thing out of order. We have one more episode coming up, and then we're going to go on a bit of a hiatus. Oh. But the episode is going to be in a very special bonus episode that wasn't on the roster, but it meets our criteria for off-Broadway transfers and harks back to a past series on someone we might have just mentioned, Janine Tesori. We are covering Kimberly Akimbo with, drumroll please, for the first time in two years, My Father. My father is from oh. the city. He, I am taking him to see Kimberly Akimbo, my fourth time, his first. 
and Boo Boo has agreed to come back on the podcast and discuss his thoughts. So that is a treat. I think so. He's not famous, but I I had enough people ask if he was going to come back on, especially because my mom did Torch Song Trilogy. They were like, well, you got to bring Boo Boo back on. So I've listened to the listeners and Boo Boo's coming. I feel like and the what podcast- a special show to see with a parent as well. Yeah, oh, I saw it re- literally two weeks ago with my mom and we both cried, but that's it's the show does it to you. Have you seen it yet, Dylan? That's my favorite show. The new, new show of the season. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Connor, you've seen that, I'm assuming? Yes. Yeah. I've seen it four times. Have you really? Well, it's, it's actually interesting to talk about Kimberly and Spring Awakening because they were both Atlantic transfers. Sure were. You know, of yeah. shows that were plays first and moved on small casts. I don't know. Very interesting. But I'm on the advertising team for Kimberly Akimbo. So everyone no, should definitely wait, go see it. Wait a second. You might know another friend of mine. We'll talk about this off mic. Adam uh, Ellsbury? You mentioned yes. Adam Ellsbury. Yeah, yeah. I work with him at the same agency. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So that's why you were at Shuck last night. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's amazing. Oh, we're gonna we're all gonna have to get together soon. Um, if I, see, I didn't know that we all had so much in common, you guys. If I had known, we would have been friends ten years ago. Oh, the timing was everything for this special moment. It, it is. gets this better. Was, this really was special. Um, if you like the podcast, guys, give us a nice five star rating or a review. It always helps with the algorithm. And that's it for now, gentlemen. We close out every episode with Robbie Diva. We like to have that diva be related to our show. We try not to do doubles, but we're getting to the point where we kind of start having to. Who should we close out with today? Who would I you mean, like? I mean, have you done Leah in Funny Girl yet? Not in Funny Girl. Have we done Leah at all? Back when I had a co-host, John, he was very anti-Leah, so we never did her. But since I've rebranded and made it all about me, just like Beth Level, <laughs> I don't think we've done Leah. So yeah, and I I just uh, got uh, I sorry, not, I didn't just get assigned to write her review. My review for her, the cast album with her just got released. So that's actually apropos. We'll do Leah and Funny Girl. Which track do we do? Star? Do we do Parade? Cornet Man? Which is a secretly killer track. Honor has to choose because Connor has a particular favorite. It's people. It's 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 people. That. It's people. <laughs> it is sublime. It is it is a wonderful people. She <laughs> she makes me almost understand the lyrics. <laughs> almost amazing. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, guys, and thank you for listening, everybody. Take us away, Leah. Bye. Son, who needs people? People who need people are the luckiest people in the Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.